When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This moment. This moment is one of personal pride and gratification. Yet one can not help but reflect the deep sadness that we feel over the troubles and the violence which have erupted, regrettably and tragically, in the streets of this great city, and for the personal injuries which have occurred. We must make this moment of crisis. We must make it a moment of creation. We stand at such a moment now in the affairs of this nation because, my fellow Americans, something new, something different has happened. There is an end of an era, and there is the beginning of a new day. Hubert Humphrey Eight years ago, I had the highest honor of accepting your nomination for President of the United States. Tonight, I again proudly accept that nomination for President of the United States. But I have news for you. This time, there is a difference. This time, we are going to win. Richard Nixon I hope it may be said, a hundred years from now, that by working together, we help to make our country more just, more just for all of its people, as well as to ensure and guarantee the blessings of liberty for all of our posterity. That is what I hope, but I believe that at least it will be said that we tried. Lyndon B. Johnson When I began the special series, I didn't know exactly where it would take me, and I'll be honest, I still don't. Right now, I'm letting the circumstances guide me. Back in March, when I was talking with my husband Alex, he challenged me to name the four most unprecedented presidential elections in my opinion. Thus far, I've covered the elections of 1824, 1864, and 1940. With this episode, I intend to address the fourth one on my list, the presidential election of 1968. Welcome, dear listener, to this very special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. I've had occasion throughout this year, which at the point of this recording is 2020 for our listeners joining us from the future. I've had occasions where I've turned back to thinking about 1968, and in terms of those of my contemporaries familiar with presidential history, I imagine that I'm not the only one to have done so in this turbulent year. While I had, of course, read and studied some on the 1968 presidential election prior to starting work on this episode in May, as I started diving into the source materials, I came to realize that there are parallels to the present state of things in America in 2020 than even I had realized. As the words kept coming and the script grew ever larger, I had to ask myself the question of whether I should split up the episode or if there was material that I should cut. Ultimately, there was very little that didn't make it into the episode and I decided the story needed to be told from start to finish. Of course, that doesn't mean that you have to listen to it in one sitting. Just do whatever you do for a Dan Carlin episode, and you'll be fine. As always, while working on this episode, I thought about the individuals that I was researching and their stories, and I felt that I owed it both to them and to you, dear listener, to see the episode through from start to finish. In the complexities and the nuances of this history, I think, like me, you'll find relatable points, points that will upset you, and points that will provide you with hope. 
History, like the present, is never simple, but in it, we can find wisdom to not repeat the same mistakes and inspiration that we, too, will overcome the current challenges. Now, before we go any further, I do have to thank a few folks who helped this episode to come together. Giving voice to Hubert Humphrey was Ben Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. Though the time period that Ben covers, the early modern period of American history, is centuries prior to 1968, the impact of the social, economic, religious, and intellectual movements of the time leading up to the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 can still be seen up to the present day. I've learned so much about the early modern period in Europe by listening to Ben's podcast, so I highly encourage you to check it out as well. Links will be in the source notes page for this episode, as well as on the podcast social media, or you can do a search online for Wittenberg to Westphalia. That's Wittenberg, B-E-R-G at the end, to West, P-H-A-L-I-A. Reading the LBJ quote was Arjun of the Deep Into History podcast. In the description of his podcast, Arjun describes himself as a tailspinner, and just a few seconds into an episode of Deep Into History, you'll be drawn into the narrative that Arjun weaves for listeners about times and figures long past. Whether it's a tale about 10th century Scandinavia, 16th century Japan, or the battles of the Trojan War, I have no doubt that you'll enjoy the journey going deep into history. Again, links will be in the source notes page and on social media, or you can search online for Deep Into History podcast. Finally, giving his vocals to Richard Nixon was my husband Alex. This episode has been a labor of love, and not always an easy one at that. Anytime I doubted myself, Alex was there to give me the love and encouragement that I needed to see this project through. For the quote and for everything else, I can't thank him enough. With that, I invite you to settle in as we go back in time to the last year of the Johnson presidency. To discuss 1968, however, we must back up to November 22, 1963, the day that Lyndon B. Johnson became president. Now, I deliberately refer to it as that in the context of 1968, as the 68 election was seen by many, including the 36th president, as a referendum on Johnson's presidency. However, the shadow that Johnson could not escape, even after over four years of being president, was that of the 35th president, John F. Kennedy. Kennedy's assassination, which had propelled Johnson to the office that he had hoped to earn on his own right, still lingered in the public consciousness. Johnson had been elected to the office in 1964, but his winning the Democratic nomination that year was never in doubt, and the Republican Party was divided and ultimately chose for its nominee a more conservative candidate, Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona, who had trouble appealing to the general electorate. Johnson ultimately won the election with 61.1% of the popular vote to Goldwater's 38.5%, and with 486 electoral votes to Goldwater's 52. Where Goldwater won his electoral votes, though, is an important point to note. In addition to his home state of Arizona, Goldwater won the electoral votes of Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. For contemporary listeners in 2020, it's not surprising that those states voted Republican. But, besides my birth state of Louisiana going for Eisenhower in 1956, That was the first time that most of the other states had gone for a Republican candidate since the 1870s. And for Georgia, it was the first time ever that it had gone for a Republican presidential candidate. The solid Democratic South being not so solid anymore would be a problem for the Democratic Party going into 1968. However, 
there was an even greater issue facing the Democrats as 1968 drew closer, Vietnam. The intricacies of the United States' involvement in Vietnam are far beyond the scope of this episode to go into, and indeed, I can't imagine how it could be covered in one episode. If you are more interested in the Vietnam War, there are a host of books available. For me, the documentary by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick has been the work that has best helped me to understand that conflict to date, so I likewise recommend it to you, though I will give a warning that it is harsh as is reflective of the reality of the situation on the ground. From the moment in March 1950, when the Truman administration agreed to give the French, quote, military and economic assistance in their conflict against the Viet Minh, American involvement had gone down a slippery slope and grown exponentially. When the French abandoned the conflict and pulled out their final forces in 1956, the United States had stepped up its support of the South Vietnamese government. As the years went on, the American role went from training the Vietnamese forces in the South to actively transporting Vietnamese troops and flying missions for the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. Finally, after the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964, when two U.S. naval vessels reported being under attack from North Vietnamese gunboats, though, as historian George Herring asserts, quote, no evidence has ever been produced to demonstrate that they, i.e. the North Vietnamese, committed hostile acts during this incident. Congress gave President Johnson authorization, quote, to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attacks against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. This led to the policy dubbed Americanization and an openly direct involvement in the conflict, including a dramatic escalation of troops on the ground. Unfortunately for those troops, as noted by Herring, quote, the United States never developed a strategy appropriate for the war it was fighting, in part because it assumed that the mere application of its vast military power would be sufficient. The failure of one level of force led quickly to the next, and then the next, until the war attained a degree of destructiveness no one would have thought possible in 1965. Despite this, as 1967 was giving way to 1968, Johnson continued to assert that, quote, we are not going to yield. We are not going to shimmy. We are going to wind up with a peace with honor, which all Americans seek. Johnson also had growing economic concerns as a challenge. Though he had announced in May 1964 that, quote, we have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward to the great society. The reality of getting to the Great Society was proving to be more complicated. In his State of the Union address in 1967, the president had painted a rosy picture, highlighting that the nation was enjoying the highest wages in history, the lowest unemployment rate in 13 years, and a nearly 5% rise in after-tax income for American households and profit for American businesses. However, at the same time, there was a 4.5% jump in consumer prices in an 18-month period and a rise in interest rates. And through the course of 1967, the Council of Economic Advisors warned that they were seeing mixed signals in the latest figures and that, quote, the mixture of news makes the economic situation unusually puzzling. By August, Johnson had to report to Congress that there was going to be, quote, a deficit of $23.6 billion in the federal budget and that, quote, A deficit of that size poses a clear and present danger to America's security and economic health. 
In addition to the growing budget shortfall, inflation persisted in consumer prices, and as Johnson's approval ratings at the time were dipping down to 39%, he found that he had little political capital to spend in order to persuade Congress to enact his administration's proposed efforts to address the nation's economic issues. There was a possibility, though, for him to get back on track, and that was carrying out a successful re-election campaign. On September 15, 1967, Johnson was interviewed by Max Frankel of the New York Times, and when Frankel asked if Johnson could win in 1968, the president responded that, quote, I sure as hell can if I decide to run for office. I will win and be right here. Johnson, however, was not the only one on the Democratic side thinking of running for the party's nomination. The president's first challenger was Eugene McCarthy, senator from Minnesota. McCarthy was born in the land of 10,000 lakes in 1916, making him nearly eight years younger than Johnson and a year older than Johnson's predecessor, John F. Kennedy. After college, he had worked as a public high school teacher for a few years before becoming a professor of economics and education at St. John's University in Minnesota. During World War II, McCarthy spent a year as a civilian technical assistant in the Military Intelligence Division of the War Department, then after the war, resumed his career in education before being elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1948. He would serve for 10 years in that body before being elected to the U.S. Senate in 1958. As described by Theodore White, quote, No one completely understands Eugene McCarthy, for the man lives by himself, a scholar, meditant, and poet, an inner-oriented person who remains an enigma to those who love him most. The word critic was the clue to the man, for he was a critic of all things. McCarthy had a, quote, quiet and long-lasting rancor for his fellow senator from Minnesota, Hubert Humphrey, and had felt shut out of the Kennedy White House. His animosity towards Johnson, if it hadn't manifested prior to, was likely spurred on by Johnson choosing Humphrey as his running mate in 1964, despite the fact that hints had been made to McCarthy, even possibly by Johnson himself, that McCarthy would get the second spot on the ticket. As time went on, Senator McCarthy became a vocal critic of the Vietnam War. Despite his support of the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which gave Johnson the wide-reaching authority to escalate the war, his initial quote-unquote cautious ambivalence, as it was described by McCarthy biographer Dominic Sandbrook, ultimately became open opposition, with McCarthy being one of five senators to vote on March 1, 1966, in support of a bill to repeal the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. Though he was in the minority in the Senate, By and large, McCarthy's anti-war sentiments were increasingly more in line with the sentiment in Washington and in the nation. As described by a journalist in 1967, quote, Washington, D.C. had become an unhappy place. As noted by Sandbrook, quote, this mood of dissatisfaction was central to Eugene McCarthy's bid for the presidency. McCarthy himself, according to a friend, had first started thinking of a presidential run in 1964, and by Christmas Eve 1966, two of his aides were drawing up campaign plans. A McCarthy campaign against an incumbent president would have been a quixotic endeavor under normal circumstances, but this was far from an ideal time for a potential re-election campaign for the president. There are numerous reasons for concern about Johnson running for re-election in 1968. Since he had assumed the presidency, Johnson had suffered from a series of health issues. In 1965 alone, Johnson had a major respiratory infection in January, 
surgery to remove a kidney stone and his gallbladder in October, and surgery on a benign polyp in his throat, as well as to repair the gallbladder incision in December. His health was such a concern that the president ordered, quote, a secret actuarial study prepared on his life expectancy in 1967 to determine whether he could live through another term as president. His political health also seemed to be ailing, as, beyond just his low approval rating, Democrats had suffered the loss of three seats in the Senate, 47 seats in the House, and eight governorships in the midterm elections of 1966. In the meantime, a key supporter was working behind the scenes to lay the groundwork for retirement. The first lady herself, Lady Bird Johnson, was convinced that her husband should not seek another term. In May 1967, she approached Johnson's close associate, Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas, to discuss a plan for Johnson to leave office. Lady Bird felt that he could, quote, pour himself into some sort of teaching work at the University of Texas. She was present for an eight-hour meeting between Johnson, Representative Jake Pickle, Democrat from Texas, and Texas Governor John Connolly, in which they reviewed all of Johnson's options. Ultimately, Johnson said that he felt he shouldn't run and instead should focus on trying to achieve peace in Vietnam, but Lady Bird knew better. When Pickle told her that the president wouldn't run, she urged the congressman to, quote, Get him to write it down. As the First Lady wrote in her diary, quote, I think we all knew that we could only really know what was going to happen when we heard it happen. In his calculations, Johnson also had to consider possible contenders. And for the president, there was a much more serious opponent to keep an eye on than Gene McCarthy, namely the junior senator from New York. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Robert Francis Kennedy was 17 years younger than Johnson, and in addition to his personal accomplishments during the course of his life, his last name alone gave him a leg up against President Johnson. The younger brother of the late former President Kennedy, Bobby had served in the U.S. Naval Reserve at the tail end of World War II before going on to complete his undergraduate studies at Harvard, then graduating from the University of Virginia Law School in 1951. Kennedy spent a good portion of his career for the next decade bouncing between serving as his brother's campaign manager and serving in numerous posts as an attorney in federal service. He had a brief tenure as an attorney for the criminal division of the Department of Justice before serving as counsel for numerous Senate committees and subcommittees. When his brother was elected president, Bobby was appointed as attorney general, and he was still serving in that post when his brother was assassinated in November 1963. It was no secret that President Johnson and Robert Kennedy didn't get along. As noted by historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr., quote, no affection contaminated the relationship between Johnson and the Attorney General. It was a pure case of mutual dislike. Johnson was 17 years older, six inches taller, expansive in nature, coarse in language, emotions near the surface. It was Southwestern exaggeration against Yankee understatement. From Robert Dalek, quote, both men were powerful at times overbearing, tyrannical figures who did not treat opponents kindly. They were alley fighters, 
knee in the groin, below-the-belt punchers, hell-bent on winning at almost any cost. They also shared bold, indeed noble dreams for the country of better race relations, less poverty, and more security from external threats. They held a common regard for the national system that had allowed both to gain prominence and power, but each self-righteously saw the other as less capable of achieving the great ends bringing them together in the same party and the same administration. The fact that Kennedy remained in the Johnson administration until September 3, 1964 is a bit of a wonder, but he had a good excuse for his resignation beyond his personal dislike for President Johnson. He was running for the U.S. Senate in New York, a seat which he won. Despite his ambition and belief that Johnson was not the right man for the job, the decision to potentially oppose him for the nomination in 1968 was not an easy one to make for Senator Kennedy. As described by Theodore White, quote, 1967 was a bad year for Robert Kennedy. As a man of action, he craved clean-cut decisions. But as a realist, he could see no way to decision. Part of the issue on the Democratic side going into 1968 is that the party apparatus that had served Democratic politicians so well for so long was breaking apart. According to White, the telephone operator at the offices of the New York State Democratic Committee supposedly quipped to a caller that, quote, there's nobody here. No one comes in anymore. You can leave a message if you'd like. Meanwhile, the state party in California had devolved into factions due to internal feuding and the political machines that had been handed down by the powerful bosses earlier in the century were only a shadow of their former selves. In all, as described by White, quote, the machinery creaked and clanked, as if it had come ungeared. Kennedy understood that if he were to challenge the incumbent president, he would cause potentially irreparable harm to the party, and quote, would be branded Kennedy the ruthless, the wrecker, the mean, hard, vindictive Bobby. His concerns and trepidations did not stop Senator Kennedy from meeting with a group of supporters in October and December 1967 to discuss the possibility. Shifting to the other side of the aisle, however, we see that ambition and careful consideration in the lead-up to the 1968 election were not solely the providence of Democrats. 1968 would mark 12 years since the last successful Republican presidential campaign, and that had been Eisenhower's re-election bid. Prior to Eisenhower's two wins, in 40 years, only eight had seen a Republican in the White House. White describes how, after the defeat in 1964, the Republican nominee, Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona, quote, had become a political pariah so contagious with defeat that three months after his downfall, not a single one of the rock-ribbed county committees of conservative Ohio wanted him as speaker at any of the eight traditional Republican Lincoln Day banquets across the state. Again from White, quote, No one in 1964 had even the vaguest idea of what might happen to the Republican Party four years later. A brisk housekeeping of the Goldwater-staffed Republican National Committee followed a month after Johnson's election. The party leaders settled down to wait, eyeing each other with suspicion and hate, and Lyndon Johnson with fear. The midterms of 1966 introduced a new political contender to the mix. When he entered the gubernatorial race in California, Ronald Reagan was someone who had never run for political office, though he had been in the public spotlight for decades. As described by historian H.W. Brands, he initially, quote, headed for Hollywood in May 1937 in a used Nash convertible, 
packed with nearly all his earthly possessions. And before long, signed a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers, which got him some of his most famous roles, including in Newt Rockney All-American and King's Row. He also starred in a 1938 comedy film entitled Brother Rat with a young actress named Jane Wyman. Reagan and Wyman soon became involved, and in January 1940, the two were married. Unfortunately for the couple, as Reagan started to become involved in politics through his role as president of the Screen Actors Guild in the midst of the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings in the late 1940s, their marriage fell apart, and in June 1948, Jane filed for divorce. I mention this for, as we discussed in the last special episode, a personal history of divorce, even in the 1960s, was a cause for concern for individuals with political ambitions. Less than a year after Reagan's divorce from Jane, Nancy Davis made her way to Hollywood, and by autumn of 1949, Ronnie and Nancy were dating. The two married in 1952, and they soon after started a family. Though Reagan had been eager to continue his movie career, he found Warner Brothers less than willing to give him big starring roles. Thus, when General Electric approached him about an opportunity to host, quote, a weekly series of short dramas that would be quality productions with top actors and guest appearances, Though initially reluctant, Reagan ultimately made the move to a new medium that would bring him into the households of millions. Reagan was also asked to deliver speeches at GE plants across the nation in an attempt to discourage labor unionization, and the Hollywood star gladly lent his voice to, quote, articulate the values of personal liberty and individual responsibility that GE executives hoped would inoculate the workers against the expansion of union influence. At times, Reagan would go even beyond the wishes of the executives and attack the federal government, despite the fact that the U.S. government was, quote, General Electric's largest customer. All this time, though, Reagan had remained a registered Democrat. Finally, in 1962, after supporting first Dwight Eisenhower, then Richard Nixon for president, Reagan made the switch and registered as a Republican. After his change of party affiliation, Reagan went full tilt giving his ardent support for Barry Goldwater in 1964 and, in fact, had delivered a speech broadcast nationwide on Goldwater's behalf. As noted by Brands, though, quote, the speech was a huge success for Reagan. Soon after Goldwater's defeat, a Reagan for President committee started up in Michigan, but Reagan and his advisors aimed a bit lower to start with. The California gubernatorial election was coming up in 1966, and despite Governor Pat Brown's defeat of Richard Nixon in 1962 by nearly 300,000 votes, there was a confidence in Reagan's ability to win. Again, from Brands, quote, The 1960s were the worst of times for conservatives, and the best. Conservatives value tradition and stability, and during the 1960s, a confluence of forces challenged tradition and stability in America as rarely before. Thus, in his announcement that he was running for governor in early 1966, Reagan positioned himself as a quote-unquote citizen politician who would meet the challenges posed, quote, by a noisy dissident minority, referring to the protests at UC Berkeley. He also adopted language that had been popularized by Theodore Roosevelt earlier in the century and attacked, quote, the politics of hyphenated Americanism, asserting that Democrats sought votes from minority groups in the U.S., quote, for political expediency so cynical men can make cynical promises in a hunt for votes. Ultimately, Reagan would best the incumbent governor by nearly one million votes as part of the tidal wave of Republican victories around the nation on November 8, 1966. Shortly after, 
When political analyst Warren Weaver Jr. of the New York Times made his predictions for the 1968 presidential race, Reagan was included in Weaver's top four expected contenders. Though Reagan dismissed such talk by asserting that he had, quote, a four-year contract with the people of California, his rhetoric seemed to indicate greater ambitions. Unlike Reagan, another person that was talked up as a contender in 1968 had achieved a certain level of notoriety for not supporting Goldwater in 1964 and walking out of the Republican National Convention that year with his son, who would, in his own right, become a future Republican presidential nominee. George Romney was born in 1907 as the fourth son to a Mormon couple that lived in, quote, an enclave called Colonia Juarez in the state of Chihuahua in Mexico. The family was ultimately forced back to the United States during the Mexican Revolution, and the Romneys would move around the western U.S. for a few years afterwards, seeking opportunities. George would get his first job at age 11, quote, shocking wheat and thinning sugar beets at a dollar an acre. When the family moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, George met Lenore LaFount, the young woman who would eventually become his wife. Their courtship, however, was interrupted by George going to England on a two-year mission for the Mormon church. As described by Romney's biographer Patrick Foster, quote, Although the mission is not mandatory for Mormons, many do make the trip as a sign of fidelity to their faith. However, just desiring to go isn't enough. Prospects must first become, in turn, a deacon, preacher, priest, and elder of the church, all generally by the time they are 20 years old. The end of Romney's mission trip found him reuniting with Lenore in Washington, D.C., where her family had moved. And soon after, George enrolled in George Washington University and got a job working in a U.S. senator's office. At this point, Lenore pursued a mission of her own as she moved first to New York City to take up acting, then got an offer from Metro Goldwyn Meyer that took her to Hollywood. Feeling that he needed to have a more established career before he could ask Lenore to marry him, George left school and got a position with Alcoa, an aluminum manufacturer. With a good job and a steady income secured, he asked for Lenore's hand in marriage, and the two were married on July 2, 1931. After a few years with Alcoa, George jumped over to a new position with the Automobile Manufacturers Association that moved him and his family to Detroit, Michigan. Rising to become the general manager of the AMA, he would help during World War II, quote, to organize the effort to convert to military production and increase production of vitally needed war material by eliminating bottlenecks and promoting cooperative exchanges of tooling. Through his work in the AMA, he would start to develop a national and international reputation. Romney was named for the first time by President Truman, quote, as a U.S. employer delegate to the Metal Trades Industry Conference of the International Labor Office in 1946. Then in 1947, he testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in support of the Marshall Plan. The next year found Romney taking a new position with Nash Kelvinator, an independent car manufacturer. Within two years, he was named as a vice president, and shortly after the merger, which created the American Motors Corporation in 1954, Romney was chosen as the new company's chairman, president, and CEO. Though George faced numerous challenges during this tenure, including a potential hostile takeover of the company, he ultimately was able to turn things around by focusing all of his and the company's attention on the Rambler model automobile, and ultimately was proven right in this decision, with the company posting a full-year profit only a year after being close to bankruptcy. As Romney is quoted as saying about the company at the time, quote, If we fail to meet our challenge and opportunity, it will not be because of others. 
it will be because we ourselves have prevented ourselves from taking advantage of our opportunities. Because of statements like this, along with admirable appearances in congressional hearings and with a prominent role in the state constitutional convention that ultimately produced the current Michigan state constitution, a push began for Romney to run for governor of Michigan in 1962. One of those pushing was former Vice President Richard Nixon. Romney not only got into the race, but he won with 51.4% of the vote over incumbent Democratic Governor John Swainson. In his tenure, Governor Romney proved that he was willing to go out on a limb. With Michigan facing an $85 million deficit in the state's general fund, Romney helped push through the state's first income tax to balance the books, along with consolidating state agencies. His idea of fiscal responsibility, however, was not just to cut across the board. Indeed, education, health care, and conservation efforts would see their budgets rise during Romney's tenure. Meanwhile, in his first State of the State address in January 1963, Romney made it clear that, quote, Michigan's most urgent human rights problem is racial discrimination in housing, public accommodations, education, administration of justice, and employment. And he set to work in his administration to address those issues. It was because he felt Senator Goldwater was weak on civil rights and too conservative in his viewpoints that Governor Romney walked out of the 1964 Republican National Convention. And while campaigning for re-election in his own right, Romney refused to endorse his party's nominee for president that year. Romney won re-election by an even wider margin than he had won two years prior, while LBJ won over Goldwater in Michigan. Political pundits increasingly talked about Romney as a presidential contender in 1968. Should Romney opt to run for the party's nomination in 1968, however, there was an even larger threat than Governor Reagan that loomed over the path ahead. Richard Milhouse Nixon had been a household name for decades, and unlike Reagan and Romney, he had long been involved in politics. A native of California, Nixon attended undergrad at Whittier College, graduated from Duke Law School, and served in the U.S. Navy during World War II before running in his first campaign. Unlike Reagan, when he registered to vote in 1938, Nixon registered as a Republican and did some work for Wendell Wilkie's campaign in 1940. Prior to dipping his toe into politics, Nixon got married and started a family. Thelma Catherine Ryan, known more commonly as Pat, had come into Nixon's life while the two were acting with the Whittier Community Players shortly after Nixon returned from law school and was getting his legal practice going. Though Nixon came on a bit strong, apparently telling Pat the first time they met that he was going to marry her. After some time passed and they had a chance to get to know each other, she did ultimately agree to marry him, and they exchanged vows on June 21, 1940. Pat was pregnant with their first child when Nixon was discharged from the Navy and recruited to run against incumbent U.S. Representative Jerry Voorhees, Democrat from California. By the end of November 1945, it was decided by party leaders in the district that Nixon would be their candidate to challenge Voorhees, and Nixon threw himself into the race with a passion. Despite Pat being well into her pregnancy and delivering their daughter Trisha on February 21, 1946, she still played an integral role in this campaign, and, as described by historian Stephen Ambrose, quote, Pat was the entire full-time office staff. One interesting item of note about elections at the time comes from Ambrose, who wrote in Volume 1 of his biography of Nixon that, quote, cross-filing was the order of the day in California, and consequently, in primary elections, it was common practice for the leading candidates to run in both the Democratic and Republican primaries. Nixon and Voorhees did so in 1946. 
Ambrose doesn't really explain why this was a common practice, but it does point to the fact that, as we saw in our last special episode, and with some of the candidates that we've already mentioned, party affiliation wasn't quite as hard and solid of a divide as it is seen to be in the modern era, 2020 as of this recording. Another observation that Ambrose makes that is worth consideration is his comment that, quote, to understand the 1946 campaign, one must begin by recognizing the depth of Republican desperation. Sixteen years of minority party status, years in which America underwent great change, had led Republicans to regard the 1946 election as almost Armageddon. Republicans all across America felt in 1946 that if there ever was a time when the ends justified the means, this was it. This was the era of the Red Scare, and Nixon would use that to his advantage, centering his campaign around the idea, quote, that Voorhees was a communist sympathizer who had communist support. Ambrose admits that, quote, this was absolutely untrue, as Nixon knew perfectly well, but it no more deterred him than it did Joe McCarthy, who made similar charges about La Follette in Wisconsin. The truth mattered not one bit to either McCarthy or Nixon, or indeed to other Republican candidates across the country. The lie would do the trick, for on November 6, 1946, Richard Nixon won 56% of the vote in the California 12th District, a margin of around 15,000 votes over the incumbent representative, and in January 1947 would be headed to the 80th United States Congress. The election had not only been an important one for Nixon, though. Winning 56 seats in the House and 13 seats in the Senate, the 80th Congress would be the first time since 1931 that Republicans would be in charge of both houses of Congress. Being a part of a party in the ascendancy once more was a perfect opportunity for an ambitious young politico like Nixon. After winning election to a second term in the House, Nixon began to think of higher office. The term of Senator Sheridan Downey, Democrat from California, was up in 1950, and due to his ill health, it was rumored that he would not run again. Thus, Nixon began to consider a run. He planned through the summer and the fall. Then, on November 3, 1949, he publicly announced his candidacy. As he expected to win the primary without much of an issue, he was able to focus his efforts on, quote, appealing to conservative Democrats rather than hardcore Republicans. As a sign that his efforts were paying off with the cross-filing practice, Nixon actually garnered 22% of the votes in the Democratic primary. The winner of that primary and the Democratic nominee for the Senate, Representative Helen Gahagan Douglas, however, demonstrated some cross-party appeal of her own, winning 13% of the votes in the Republican primary. As with his campaign against Voorhees, Nixon deployed the red-baiting tactic in the general election against Douglas. And again, as in 1946, it would work in a big way. Nixon won the U.S. Senate race, quote, by a margin of 680,000 votes, the largest plurality of any Senate winner of that year. Nixon was on the fast track, and in two years' time, he was asked to be Dwight Eisenhower's running mate. Then, in November 1952, was elected vice president of the United States. The problems for Nixon's chances to become president in his own right, however, started with the 1952 campaign and kept compounding over the next decade. Allegations of corruption related to a secret fund that had been set up for Nixon by businessmen in California had threatened to throw him off the ticket in 1952. And, though he had managed to save his neck with a well-received television speech outlining his defense, it had strained his relationship with the incoming president. As Ambrose states about the situation at the end of 1952, quote, Nixon needed Eisenhower. 
but Eisenhower did not need Nixon. Nixon spent his two terms as vice president not only trying to prove himself to Eisenhower, but also to position himself to be seen as Eisenhower's logical successor in the public consciousness. This put the more conservative Nixon in an awkward position of potentially alienating his base of support in order to gain Eisenhower's blessing. Nixon easily secured the Republican nomination for president in 1960, winning all but 10 votes at the convention. But for reasons far beyond the scope of this episode to discuss, he lost the general election by a margin of just over 118,000 votes to Senator John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts. After leaving the vice presidency, Nixon returned to California and was soon considering another run for office, this time for governor of California, though his wife Pat warned him that she felt, quote, that if you run, it will be a terrible mistake. Nixon threw his hat into the ring at a press conference on September 27, 1961. Pat was right. And in November 1962, Nixon lost the election to incumbent Governor Pat Brown by 297,000 votes. It was at his press conference the day after the election that Nixon delivered one of his most well-known quotes. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Despite this claim, Nixon was far from done in politics. Despite his declining an official run in 1964, he racked up just over 197,000 votes, most of which were write-in votes, in the primaries that year, and in a number of races, didn't run far behind the eventual nominee, Senator Goldwater. Nixon was, however, done with California after the 62 election, and he and his family soon after moved to New York, where he joined a Wall Street law firm. As Nixon himself acknowledged in an autobiography written later in his life, The move took him away from his political base on the West Coast and instead squarely positioned him in a state dominated by someone who had already been and would likely again be a rival for a future presidential run. Though Theodore White saw this move as working against Nixon in a possible run in 1964, one has to wonder if Nixon saw an opening to leave a political base that hadn't worked for him thus far and instead make connections to establish a new, more powerful one in the East to be ready for a run in 1968. Before we pursue that idea too far, though, let's take a look at the other Republican rival. Nelson Rockefeller was born on July 8, 1808, to John D. Rockefeller Jr. and Abby Aldridge Rockefeller. If the family name sounds familiar to you, then you're likely thinking of Nelson's grandfather, the Gilded Age tycoon John D. Rockefeller Sr., who made his fortune with a company called Standard Oil. As noted by Nelson's biographers Michael Kramer and Sam Roberts, quote, Seizing control of virtually every aspect of oil production across the country, he, John Sr., accumulated wealth with a rapidity that only contemporary technology made possible, and on a scale which prompted tax and antitrust laws that would prohibit any repetition of his example. His grandfather loomed over Nelson's early life, both in terms of an example to learn from and as a physical presence, as Nelson spent a good deal of time with his grandfather and was rather fond of him. Though Nelson struggled with dyslexia through his academic career, he graduated cum laude from Dartmouth College in 1930, and soon after wed Mary Todd Hunter Clark. Nelson initially got involved in the family business, as well as independent forays into the financial sector and philanthropic endeavors. But in 1940, he was called into government service as an unsalaried coordinator for the Office for Coordination of Commercial and Cultural Relations between the American Republics under the Roosevelt administration. Within a few years, Rockefeller was named Assistant Secretary of State for Latin American Affairs, 
but he would not remain long in this position as he was ousted from it by Roosevelt's successor, Harry Truman. His tenure in government service fostered an interest in international relations. And so, in 1946, he founded the American International Association for Economic and Social Development. Rockefeller would be brought back into government service under Truman's successor, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Rockefeller biographers Michael Kramer and Sam Roberts asserted that Nelson was angling for a cabinet post in the Eisenhower administration, but was blocked by Secretary of the Treasury George Humphrey, who felt that Rockefeller would, quote, wreck the budget with his spending. Instead, Rockefeller turned his attention towards elected office, and on June 30th, 1958, announced his candidacy for governor of New York at Rockefeller Plaza in New York City. Rockefeller won that election over incumbent Democratic Governor Averill Harriman, and in 1959 was inaugurated as governor of the Empire State. Kramer and Roberts give some insight into Rockefeller's appeal in their description of his communication style. Quote, His monotonous public speaking style was always surpassed by the spontaneous pithy remarks with which he crushed or confused his critics. To the voters, he was Rocky or The Rock. Despite his limited experience in elected office, Rockefeller's name was thrown into the mix in 1960, and thanks to write-in votes, he got over 30,000 votes in the Republican primary that year. However, as that was only 0.6% of the voters, he, along with the rest of the party, got behind Nixon. As 1964 drew ever closer, though, it was clear that Rockefeller intended to run, and even President Kennedy is reported to have felt that Rockefeller would be his opponent in his re-election campaign. That matchup, of course, did not come to be, but Rockefeller was determined to make a go for it. As described by Theodore White, quote, The crew that Nelson Rockefeller took into battle in New Hampshire was one of the most elaborate ever to enter political war in America in modern times. By that point, Rockefeller had earned the reputation of being simultaneously, quote, one of the wealthiest men in the world, one of the most stubborn men in the world, and one of the most high-principled. And he was rough. His enemies called him, quite simply, the most ruthless man in politics. Despite all of this, Rockefeller came in third in New Hampshire, and his campaign sputtered out from there. Part of this lackluster showing in 1964, according to White, was attributable to Rockefeller's divorce from his first wife in 1962, and his marriage the next year to Margareta Fittler Murphy, who was better known as Happy. It didn't help that Happy had been involved as a volunteer in Rockefeller's initial run for governor of New York in 1958, nor did it help that Happy was married up until 1963, the same year she and Nelson married, and that she had four children by her first husband. However, Happy's marriage to Robin Murphy was not synonymous with her nickname. As described by White, Robin, quote, was intensely jealous of his wife, and there had been frightening scenes. She had sought psychiatric help as to what she should do to preserve and rebuild her marriage. Her psychiatrist's advice, according to White, leave her husband. For the Rockefeller's part, though Nelson and his first wife Todd had had five children, White describes that the two had different desires in life. Todd didn't want the spotlight, while Nelson craved it. While all this is understandable in the early 21st century, in 1964, Nelson's candidacy was derailed by, quote, the morality issue. Beyond just the loss of the nomination in 1964, though, Rockefeller faced trouble as he came up for re-election as governor in 1966. According to Kramer and Roberts, quote, Going into the 1966 campaign, Rockefeller's own polls showed that only 21% of the people were willing to vote for him for governor. Thankfully for the governor, the Democrat chosen to oppose him was a lackluster candidate. 
and Rockefeller yet again proved himself to be a candidate who could close the deal. Quote, in 10 months, he visited every county in the state. He made 380 speeches, often renouncing any further ambitions by pledging that he had taken himself out of national politics completely and forever without reservation. He never lost stride, always taking the offensive, never permitting an awkward moment to mar a day of campaigning. Though the margin was closer than he had seen in his previous elections, Rockefeller came out victorious that November. That went out of the way, the governor now had to consider what to do about 1968. Rockefeller's initial inclination was to support Romney, and he invited his fellow governor to a Rockefeller family property in Puerto Rico in late 1966 to discuss how he could support the Michigan governor in a presidential run. As always, there were other contenders in the mix. Massachusetts Governor John Volpe was being talked about as a possible dark horse candidate. The, by that point, perennial candidate Harold Stassen, the former governor of Minnesota who ran for every Republican presidential nomination from 1944 through 1992, became the first candidate to announce at a speech in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on November 14, 1967. Before we can truly say that we've rounded out the cast of main characters in our narrative, however, it behooves us to return to the other side of the aisle and familiarize ourselves with President Johnson's intended running mate should he run for re-election in 1968. Hubert Horatio Humphrey Jr. was born in a room over his father's drugstore in Dolan, South Dakota on May 27, 1911. In this small town with a population of around 600, Hubert was affectionately known as Pinky. Pinky grew up in an impoverished community which did not feel the economic boom that other parts of the nation experienced in the 1920s, and thus, when the overall economy crashed, felt the pains of the collapse even harder. Even before the Wall Street crash of 1929, the two banks in Dolan closed in 1926, and Hubert's father had to sell their house in order to, quote, pay his bills. Despite this economic hardship, Hubert was sent to college at the University of Minnesota, but after a year, he was forced to drop out in order to help his father as he relocated his business to the larger town of Huron, South Dakota. With his father's encouragement, Hubert enrolled in the Capital College of Pharmacy and in six months completed a two-year course to become a licensed pharmacist. While Hubert was dissatisfied with his work at the pharmacy, his time in Huron would afford him an opportunity to meet a sophomore at the local college, Muriel Buck. As the story goes, quote, a friend of Muriel's took her into the drugstore to meet this new boy in town. In September 1936, the two were married, and Muriel, who took a job as a bookkeeper at a local power company, saved her pay so that the two could move back to Minneapolis for Hubert to finish his studies at the University of Minnesota. In the fall of 1937, they were off. He finished his work up there in two years, and then, with the assistance of one of his instructors in procuring a teaching fellowship, moved with Muriel and their first child, Nancy, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to engage in graduate studies at Louisiana State University. Now, I'll admit that I was this many years old when I learned that Hubert Humphrey did graduate studies at LSU, a school with which I'm quite familiar, as I grew up just south of Baton Rouge. I was a bit giddy when I saw this, but I'll go ahead and put that aside as I digress. Beyond just an education in political science, Humphrey's time in Baton Rouge gave him a crash course on segregation, and he didn't like what he saw. As he later said, quote, the shock and outrage at what I saw there gave flesh and blood to my abstract commitment to civil rights. Hubert would carry this knowledge with him when he returned to Minnesota and began to engage in politics. However, as a self-identified Democrat, 
Humphrey faced a problem in the land of a thousand lakes. At that point, quote, Democrats were mere also-rans in Minnesota politics. Minnesota was, in fact, a three-party state, with the main competitors being the Republicans and the members of the leftist Farmer Labor Party. As described by Solberg, quote, the Farmer Laborites may have been the most militantly extreme political party ever to hold statewide power in America. Behind these two parties, Democrats ran a distant third. Humphrey's first run for elective office would be in a nonpartisan race for mayor of Minneapolis in 1943. In the primary election, despite being poorly funded, Hubert did come in second to the incumbent mayor, Marvin Klein, who was backed by the Republican Party. Ultimately, he would lose that election, but for someone new to politics, it was an admirable showing. Klein only won by garnering just over 60,000 votes to Humphrey's 54,000. Humphrey's experience helped him to see that there needed to be a unified force against the Republican Party in Minnesota. And thus, in 1944, he devoted his efforts to bringing together the Democratic and Farmer Labor Parties in the state. That year, the two parties merged, and Hubert turned his attention to his next run for mayor. Humphrey won election as mayor of Minneapolis in 1945 by the largest margin to that point in the city's history, a victory that would gain him notice. Humphrey's visibility would be raised to a national level due to his role in the 1948 Democratic National Convention. While it's beyond the scope of this episode to go into too many details, suffice it to say that civil rights came to the forefront at the convention that year, and there was much contention between the traditional Southern conservative elements of the party and the left-wing New Deal Democrats. Humphrey came out strongly at the convention in support of civil rights. In a speech on the convention floor, Humphrey proclaimed, quote, To those who say, my friends, to those who say that we are rushing this issue of civil rights, I say to them, we are 172 years too late. To those who say the civil rights program is an infringement on states' rights, I say this, the time has arrived in America for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadow of states' rights and walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. That year, the Democratic Party split in three with Southern Democrats walking out to form the state's rights party, more popularly known as the Dixiecrats, while a liberal faction rallied around former Vice President Henry Wallace and formed a new progressive party. As I'm sure many of you know, Truman ended up winning the day in the election that year, but Truman was not the only one on the ballot. Humphrey was campaigning for the U.S. Senate that year against the incumbent Republican Senator Joseph Hearst Ball, and by a margin of around 243,000 votes, the mayor of Minneapolis, became the new senator from Minnesota. The new senator attracted so much acclaim that, when the 1952 presidential election came about, the state of Minnesota showed its support for him by giving him 80% of the vote in that state's Democratic presidential primary. As we've discussed in previous episodes of this special series, however, at the time, the primaries weren't quite as impactful as they are in the present day. And though Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee garnered 64.3% of the votes in the presidential primaries that year, it was ultimately Illinois Governor Adlai Stevenson who got the party's nomination. In 1956, though the people at the top of the ticket would not change for either of the two major parties, Stevenson did add an element of chance to the process as he announced that he would leave his choice of running mate entirely up to the convention. Humphrey was one of the names tossed about, and, though Humphrey earned 134.5 votes in the first round of voting, the nod would ultimately go to Kefauver. 
Humphrey would again be in the presidential mix in 1960, but this time he made an active effort. Unfortunately for Hubert, he also faced a strong competitor in the form of John F. Kennedy. As the election season neared, Kennedy was seen as the frontrunner, but Humphrey and his supporters saw an opportunity for his candidacy in the Wisconsin primary. As Humphrey biographer Carl Solberg noted, quote, Humphrey had his strengths, and one was surely his two-term record as the upper Midwest spokesman on its biggest issue, a fair deal for its farmers. Despite this, when a group purporting to be a pro-Humphrey campaign group launched an ad attacking Kennedy on the issue of his Catholic faith, Humphrey had to go on the defensive and ultimately lost the Wisconsin primary and the Democratic nomination to Kennedy. This setback did not deter Humphrey from seeking and winning election to a third term in the Senate in 1960. As Solberg described Humphrey's re-election win that year, quote, In his first 12 years in Washington, he, Humphrey, had been a pioneer, proposing and promising. Now, as he saw it, the liberal hour had struck, and he had risen to the station from which he could seize the chance to put across his ideas. He showed himself to be the most creative of legislators, enacting into law measures he had first put forward years before. He was zesty, jolly, driving, ranging into almost every field of human activity. To many around him, he seemed a figure larger than life. Humphrey had had a good relationship with Lyndon Johnson from their time together in the Senate, and thus, as 1964 drew closer, Hubert began to urge his supporters to do all they could to work towards his receiving the vice presidential nomination that year. Humphrey is noted as saying to his closest advisors that, quote, I want to become president, and the only way I can is to become vice president. However, as Hubert quickly learned, being second to Johnson would carry a heavy price. Though Johnson made encouraging remarks to Humphrey about the possibility of his joining the ticket that year as early as January 1964, he also, quote, floated other names to the press during strenuous walks around the White House grounds later in the year. As Johnson biographer Robert Dalek noted, quote, Johnson kept Humphrey on tenderhooks until the last possible moment. As that moment drew near, Humphrey promised Johnson that, quote, you can rely on me. I will be loyal. Again from Dalek, quote, Johnson hated criticism or any challenge to his authority. Everyone who worked for him was expected to be 100% a Johnson man, a loyalist who, whatever his inner thoughts, would subordinate his views and ambitions to Johnson's. It was under these conditions that Humphrey became Johnson's running mate and ultimately the 38th Vice President of the United States. In his tenure of office, Humphrey had abided by his promise no matter the ups and downs of the fortunes of President Johnson, and as the term drew closer to its end, it seemed like his fortunes were looking ever more dire. By 1968, the question remained, as expressed by Solberg, quote, his consensus having vanished, could the president muster a majority when he ran again? The left had abandoned him, the Republicans were resurgent. Johnson was holed up in a kind of hedgehog position in the middle. A good spot in American politics, but not a good posture. Humphrey was irrevocably tied to Johnson and his war policy, and he knew it. On his Asian tour, he had said to reporters, quote, If the war in Vietnam is a colossal failure, I know what happens to me. Vietnam was a large part of the reason why Senator Eugene McCarthy declared his candidacy for the Democratic nomination for president on November 30, 1967. 
During the summer of 1967, two activists with Americans for Domestic Action had made the rounds with anti-war Democrats, attempting to identify someone who could challenge Johnson for the nomination. Their attention was initially focused on Senator Kennedy due to a speech he had made in the Senate on March 2nd of that year, urging that Johnson order a halt in bombing in Vietnam. However, as we touched on previously, Kennedy had his concerns about challenging Johnson for the nomination. Despite his differences with the president, Kennedy felt that he could not win the nomination and that he would get labeled as a spoiler as a primary challenge would hurt Johnson's chances in the general election. As Senator Kennedy said in September, quote, People would say that I was splitting the party out of ambition and envy. No one would believe that I was doing it out of how I feel about Vietnam and the poor. Realizing that Kennedy was a long shot, the two anti-war activists then approached Senator George McGovern of South Dakota, but McGovern declined to run as he was up for re-election to the Senate that year. Finally, they turned to Senator McCarthy, meeting with him on October 23rd, and he soon after agreed to run. Before he made his announcement, McCarthy checked in with Kennedy to get a feel for his intentions. Satisfied that Kennedy was out of it, he gave his speech on November 30th in the Senate caucus room. While he announced that he would, quote, challenge Johnson in four primaries, Sandbrook notes that, quote, McCarthy never once said that he was a candidate for the presidency or even for the Democratic nomination and never gave the slightest indication that he thought he could actually defeat the president. In fact, Given that his statement focused uniquely on the issue of Vietnam, it seems clear that he intended his candidacy to be perceived as a vehicle for protesting against the war rather than as a serious bid for office. Indeed, his initial campaign efforts were quite lackluster, with historian Michael Nelson describing McCarthy's first campaign speech as, quote, a muted, almost scholarly speech opposing both the war and the expansive view of presidential power shared by Johnson and the Kennedys. The speech drained from the hall the energy that had been roused by the rip-roaring anti-Johnson introduction that had preceded him. In two months of campaigning, in late January 1968, a new Gallup poll found that McCarthy's initial trailing of Johnson by three-to-one margin had actually dropped. Now, he was behind Johnson by four-to-one margin. McCarthy's prospects would improve, however, after the events of January 30, 1968. As described by historian George Herring, quote, At 2.45 a.m. on January 30, 1968, a team of National Liberation Front sappers blasted a large hole in the wall surrounding the U.S. Embassy in Saigon and dashed into the courtyard of the compound. For the next six hours, the most important symbol of the American presence in Vietnam was the scene of one of the most dramatic episodes of the war. Unable to get through the heavy door at the main entrance of the embassy building, the attackers retreated to the courtyard and took cover behind large concrete flower pots, pounding the building with rockets and exchanging gunfire with a small detachment of military police. This incident would have been bad enough, but it was only one of many that morning. The day was actually the Vietnamese New Year holiday known as Tet a day in which there was supposed to be a ceasefire so that celebrations could proceed across Vietnam undisturbed. While it is outside of the scope of this episode to cover the ins and outs of operations in the Vietnam War, I do think it important to understand the scope of what became known as the Tet Offensive. North Vietnamese leaders had decided in early to mid-1967 that they needed to take the fight to the urban areas of South Vietnam, and they spent a good part of the year getting everything, people, weapons, supplies, in place for the offensive. 
They also launched, quote, a number of large-scale diversionary attacks in remote areas to draw U.S. troops away from the urban centers. In the offensive, in a period of 24 hours, quote, the NLF launched a series of attacks extending from the demilitarized zone to the Kaimau Peninsula on the southern tip of Vietnam. In all, they struck 36 of 44 provisional capitals, five of the six major cities, 64 district capitals, and 50 hamlets. In addition to the daring raid on the embassy, NLF units assaulted Saigon's Tunsarnut Airport, the Presidential Palace, and the headquarters of South Vietnam's General Staff. In Hue, 7,500 NLF and North Vietnamese troops stormed and eventually took control of the ancient citadel, the interior town that had been the seat of the emperors of the Kingdom of Annam. Herring asserts that, despite later assessments by Americans that the Tet Offensive was planned out of desperation, quote, it seems more likely that the offensive was born of excessive optimism, a growing perception that the urban areas of South Vietnam were ripe for revolution. There are no indications that Hanoi thought the offensive would be decisive, however. Indeed, in the immediate sense, the offensive was a failure. As Nelson notes, quote, the offensive did not spark a domestic uprising, was beaten back with massive casualties, and resulted in severe permanent damage to the NLF. For the Johnson administration, though, it was a body blow. The Johnson administration had focused their efforts on the success offensive in late 1967, with top officials and military officers stressing the success of U.S. operations in Vietnam. Humphrey had, of course, been a part of this. And in mid-November, he appeared on the NBC television morning show Today, asserting that, quote, we are beginning to win this struggle. Ted, however, had played out on the television screens of the American public. The success offensive had seen the president's approval rating jump up 10 points from 38% in October to 48% that January. As soon as the news broke, though, his primary challenger, Senator McCarthy, jumped on the opportunity to criticize the administration's war efforts. McCarthy asserted that, quote, Only a few months ago, we were told that 65% of the population of Vietnam was secure. Now, we know that even the American embassy is not secure. He also pointedly attacked the administration's success offensive in the latter part of the year by quipping, quote, I suppose by this logic that if the Viet Cong captured the entire country, the administration will be claiming their total collapse. Six weeks after Tet, Johnson's approval rating had lost all the gains of the past few months and actually sunk lower than it had been as it was down 12 points from the January high. Johnson also suffered a major PR setback when, on February 27th, Walter Cronkite, the CBS news anchorman who was described as, quote, the nation's most trusted person, announced his belief on air that the conflict in Vietnam was at an impasse and that nothing could be accomplished by prolonging the conflict. In addition to having to consider how to proceed after Tet, President Johnson had to make some decisions about his own political future in the first couple of months of 1968. Johnson continued to waffle back and forth in the fourth quarter of 1967 about whether to retire at the end of his current term or run again. He asked advisors to write statements for him to withdraw from the 1968 race, only to have them sit undelivered. Meanwhile, other advisors were tasked with drawing up a campaign strategy. Johnson kept watch on the polls and thus became optimistic as January went on, that is, in chill Tet. As described by Dalek, quote, Tet drained Johnson's resources beyond endurance. During the week after Tet began, 
Johnson got almost no sleep. He spent his nights distracting himself from the anxieties of the war by shuffling between the Situation Room, the Oval Office, and his living quarters, where he played dominoes with his brother Sam Houston and old Texas friends. As the Tet Offensive became a military defeat for the Communists, Johnson's thoughts of staying in the race revived. Part of the reason for his optimism was in how the Republican side of the contest was shaping out. Governor George Romney had originally been the candidate to beat for the Republican nomination, but he suffered a series of setbacks in 1967. In late July of that year, riots erupted in Detroit, and Romney found that he had to request federal troops when it became clear that local and state officers could not contain the situation. However, Johnson, realizing that he could turn the Michigan government's dilemma to his advantage, had administration officials tell Romney that he would have to make the request in writing and state in the request, quote, that an insurrection existed, which was completely out of control. Romney at first resisted, knowing that this would make it look like he wasn't able to maintain order in his state. But after a back and forth, the Johnson administration and the Romney administration were finally able to agree to the language for a request. While they were engaged in their back and forth, the riot had continued unabated. Ultimately, 43 people were killed in the Detroit riot, while 467 were injured, over 7,200 arrested, and over 1,200 buildings were destroyed. Romney also started to suffer under greater scrutiny. The governor was a Mormon, a religion that was even less understood by the general American public in 1968 than it was in 2012 when his son Mitt became the Republican nominee. This faith, in addition to being an unfamiliar and therefore circumspect religion in the eyes of a number of Americans, also opened Romney up to questions about his commitment to civil rights as the Mormon church barred black people from serving as priests. In a third blow, George Romney was also questioned about whether he was, in fact, eligible to become president. As stated earlier, Romney, though a U.S. citizen from birth, had been born in Mexico. Did that make him a quote-unquote natural-born citizen as stipulated in the Constitution? The citizenship question is nothing new to American presidential politics. And indeed, we've seen it brought up in campaigns in the 21st century. In terms of boosting his election prospects, the governor did himself no favors in an appearance on a television talk show taped on August 31st in which he discussed a fact-finding trip that he took to Vietnam a few years back. Romney responded to a question about the conflict as follows, quote, Well, you know, when I came back from Vietnam in 1965, I just had the greatest brainwashing that anybody can get when you go over to Vietnam. And since returning from Vietnam, I've changed my mind in that particular. I no longer believe it was necessary for us to get involved in South Vietnam. This was an attempt to explain his change of policy from a strong support for the war effort to becoming a vocal critic of it, but it was an attempt that opened him up to jokes and mockery, even from Gene McCarthy, about his quote-unquote brainwashing. Despite these setbacks, on November 18, 1967, Governor George Romney announced his candidacy for the Republican nomination for president and the polls still showed him as being the strongest Republican contender against Johnson in the general election. As 1967 gave way to 1968, Governor Nelson Rockefeller was still staunchly behind his fellow governor from the Wolverine State. He even publicly stated in October that, quote, I don't want to be president. However, with Romney's missteps, Rockefeller was also telling folks to the side that, should things not work out for Romney, he would be okay with being drafted as the party's nominee. 
Rocky's aim, even more so than to support Romney, was to defeat Nixon for the nomination. And if Romney couldn't do it, then why not have a go of it himself? Likewise, Governor Ronald Reagan was leaving open the possibility of a run himself, though he continued to make public statements that he was not a candidate. Indeed, he had pledged in his 1966 campaign that he would not run for president in 1968. However, he just happened to keep finding himself in situations like at the Young Republicans National Convention in Omaha, Nebraska in June 1967, quote, where the meeting hall was plastered with Reagan and 68 banners, posters, and bumper stickers. On May 15, 1967, Reagan participated in a nationally televised debate during prime time against Senator Kennedy and ended up being seen as the victor of the matchup. Reagan, however, would suffer his own setback when, on October 31st, a story from columnist Drew Pearson hit the press, quote, that for six months, Reagan had tolerated the presence of a homosexual ring in the California governor's office. As an openly gay man for a number of years now, I can unfortunately share that such a seedy description used to designate the existence of members of the LGBTQ plus community is not a phenomenon found just in the history books. But I digress. The truth of the matter was that Reagan's chief of staff had been identified as gay and had hired a gay man as his scheduler. But shortly after finding out about it, Reagan had both of them fired. However, as noted by Nelson, quote, In the political climate of the day, as intolerant of homosexual relations as it was tolerant of heterosexual promiscuity, Reagan's immediate presidential hopes suffered from what would have been a national scandal if he had chosen to run. Meanwhile, former Vice President Nixon had been positioning himself since his move to the East Coast. Though he had not actively campaigned for the Republican nomination for president again in 1964, he had made his voice heard and kept his name in the news. Nixon traveled abroad. Nixon wrote articles for the Reader's Digest. Nixon spoke at the annual Gridiron Club dinner. It seemed like everywhere you turned, there was Nixon in the first few months of 1964. The former vice president issued public remarks on his position on the situation with Vietnam, positioning himself even further right than Goldwater. He and his supporters even organized behind-the-scenes efforts to push Nixon through in a write-in campaign in the primaries. And for a bit, it looked like he might just get another opportunity to lead the party into the general campaign. Ultimately, though, when Goldwater won the Republican primary in California, it was clear that the race was his. No matter. Nixon had learned from the 64 race that there was still a strong base of support for him out there, and Goldwater's abysmal defeat meant that, as the senator from Arizona was unlikely to be the party's nominee again, there was another strong base of support to which he could likely add to his own. If he were to have a chance of victory, however, he would have to appeal to the more moderate bloc in the Republican Party as well. It was no easy task, but Nixon took up the challenge by first focusing his attention on the 1966 elections. As described by Ambrose, quote, Nixon's presumed purpose in 1966 was to help GOP candidates, a position reinforced by his refusal to discuss 1968 and his own chances for nomination. But Broder, Wicker, Reston, Whitcover, and other reporters speculated that he was creating a political base for 1968 and that it was the South. He campaigned in all 11 of the former Confederate states. There were 279 delegates from the states of the old Confederacy, nearly half the total needed to nominate. Almost all had gone for Goldwater in 1964, 
In a race between Rockefeller, Romney, and Nixon, Nixon was almost sure told them all for himself in 1968. He was not just appealing to the conservatives that year, however. Nixon also participated in high-level talks with other Republican leaders, including the coordinating committee of the RNC, where he urged that, quote, Republicans in 1966 should campaign against LBJ, not against their local Democratic opponents. He suggested themes worked out by his speechwriters, punchy stuff devoid of thought or content, but excellent material for campaigning by slogan. He also put himself out in front of the media, both print and television, stirring the pot on the Democratic side by suggesting that Johnson would be forced to dump Humphrey as his running mate in 1968 and instead bring Robert Kennedy onto the ticket. With the Republican victory in the 66 midterms, it was clear that Nixon was still a strong party leader and a strong candidate for the next presidential nomination battle. After Romney's gaffe in September 1967 and Drew Pearson's stories about the Reagan quote-unquote homosexual ring the following month, Nixon's stock started to rise, and he worked to make himself look like the presumptive nominee by challenging President Johnson to debate him in 1968. Nixon also got a small boost from his ties to the still-popular former President Eisenhower when it was announced on November 30th that Eisenhower's grandson David was to marry Nixon's daughter Julie. Though Ike declined to give Nixon an early endorsement when he was asked by reporters, the family ties certainly didn't hurt Nixon. The former vice president, however, did have to secure three very important endorsements before he could proceed with a public announcement, that of his wife and two daughters. To do that, he at least claimed while they were together for the Christmas holiday that he had decided not to run. He went so far as to write out the reasons why he shouldn't become a candidate, with the last one being, quote, I don't give a damn. His daughter Julie noted in her diary, after he told him on Christmas Day of this shocking change of heart, that, quote, he was very depressed. I had never known him to be depressed before, not even after 1962. Shortly after, he consulted with the Reverend Billy Graham about what to do, and Graham urged him to run. David Eisenhower, his soon-to-be son-in-law, wrote him a letter also encouraging him to seek the nomination. Finally, after a couple of weeks, Nixon gathered his family together on January 15, 1968, and after seeking their advice once more, announced that, quote, I have decided to run again. Julie wrote in her diary after that meeting that, though she felt her mother was, quote, opposed to running, but at least she is reconciled now. Ambrose describes this as being a trend with Nixon. Quote, for Nixon, this sort of thing was a necessary part of gearing up for the campaign. For Nixon, Every decision had to be a crisis. Every decision had to be a part of a larger drama, even when there was none. He pretended, evidently even to himself, that he was in an agony of indecision. Was this just an act to ensure his family's unquestioned support? Was the main purpose to get Pat behind the idea? Was it just something that he psychologically felt that he needed to do before he could move forward? Whatever the case, the next morning, he was back in his office and hard at work on building up his campaign. On February 1st, not only did the mailboxes of 150,000 households in New Hampshire, around 85% of the households in the state, receive a letter from the Nixon campaign, Nixon himself held a press conference that afternoon in Manchester announcing that he would run in the Republican primary in that state. Nixon made sure that the press noticed that David Eisenhower was there at the press conference a not-so-subtle hint towards his relationship with the former president, though Ike still hadn't endorsed Nixon. 
A few weeks away from the New Hampshire primaries, and only four candidates had thus far announced. On the Republican side, Romney, Nixon, and of course, Harold Stassen. While on the Democratic side, Eugene McCarthy was still the only announced candidate. Though Johnson was still presumed to be a candidate and gave no indication otherwise, his poll numbers continued to plummet. In a potential matchup against Nixon, the two were in a dead heat in late February. Still, in a poll ran on March 4th, LBJ was projected to get nearly two-thirds of the votes in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire, despite the fact that he would be a write-in vote. Finally, after hearing some promising reports that he may not be opposed by anti-war senators like Bobby Kennedy and George McGovern, on March 8th, Johnson gave his political aides the go-ahead to work on the primary campaign effort. Since Tet, meanwhile, McCarthy had been stepping up his efforts. He expanded his policy speeches beyond the Vietnam issue to discuss domestic programs. However, his statements were inconsistent. As noted by Sandbrook, not only would his figures fluctuate, but his attitude towards the various programs that have been initiated or proposed under the Johnson administration, which were collectively dubbed the Great Society, quote, was extremely ambiguous. On the one hand, he lamented that it had been starved off funds. On the other, he complained that it had been imposed on people and had no moral or intellectual constituents. McCarthy's main base of support came from quote-unquote young activists and quote-unquote upper-middle-class professionals. Some advisors and supporters became concerned about McCarthy's style. Again from Sandbrook, quote, Among reporters, he became notorious for the perverse habit of giving the dullest speeches before the largest audiences. And as the campaign drew on, his rhetoric became ever more encumbered with meaningless qualifiers, kind of, perhaps, and so on, obscure classical and theological allusions, and a pervasive sense of vagueness and indirectness. He spoke in a low monotone and, quote, simply did not believe that aggressive, excited, or declamatory rhetoric was appropriate during a period of national crisis. This style, however, seemed to work to McCarthy's advantage, especially when he appeared on television. On that medium, it came across as, quote, simple, direct, calm, and frank. Nobody could believe he was a radical. Even Barry Goldwater was noted as complimenting McCarthy as, quote, a gentleman and a scholar who has done things in a calm and reasonable way. As the New Hampshire primary on March 12th neared, it was clear that there was momentum behind McCarthy, but the question on everyone's mind was just how much there was. It turns out that the last-minute decision to let his political aides loose in New Hampshire backfired for the president. They had attempted to attack McCarthy's patriotism, while McCarthy's campaign had proceeded with a clear, simple message. Quote, vote for a man you can believe in. Eugene McCarthy for president. Though Johnson did ultimately win the New Hampshire primary, he only won it with 49.6% of the vote, not nearly the two-thirds once predicted. Meanwhile, McCarthy ran strong with 41.9%, and he even managed to get 5,511 write-in votes in the Republican primary. Johnson had only gotten 1,778 write-ins on the Republican side. Before we get to the impact of this result, though, let's shift to the Republican primary for a moment. Romney's candidacy continued in its tailspin during the new year, with even former President Eisenhower, who had privately expressed that Romney was his preferred candidate, telling friends that the Michigan governor, quote, sounds like a man in a panic, and a man who panics is not the candidate for president. By late February, Romney's own internal polls showed him with only 10% of the vote in the primary versus Nixon's 75%. 
Though Nixon had been concerned about his chances in New Hampshire, it was clear that the former vice president was connecting in a way that Romney couldn't. Thus, on February 28th, Romney announced that he was ending his candidacy. Nixon and his aides saw Romney's exit as denying them a, quote, meaningful victory, and instead inviting in a challenge from New York Governor Rockefeller. Indeed, though Nixon won with a resounding 77.6% of the vote in the Republican primary and even got 2,532 write-in votes in the Democratic primary, coming in second was the write-in candidate Rockefeller with just over 11,000 votes. Still on the ballot, Romney only got just over 1,700 votes, or 1.7%, while Stassen eked out 429 votes, 0.4% of the primary vote. Rockefeller himself had left the door open with a statement on March 1st asserting that while, quote, not contending for the nomination, I am ready and willing to serve the American people if called. While the Republican side wondered what this meant for Rockefeller and whether he would enter the race, the attention in the Democratic Party after New Hampshire was on two people, Lyndon Johnson and Robert Kennedy. His declining to oppose Johnson had actually lost Kennedy some key staffers on his team. After Tet, though, Bobby had stepped up his criticism of the president, delivering a strong anti-war speech on February 8th. Kennedy grew concerned over what he felt was the unsustainable nature of McCarthy's rise and what McCarthy's inevitable fall would mean for the nomination. And as of March 4th, he asked one of his staffers to talk with his brother, Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts, to get his thoughts on what Bobby's chances would be were he to throw his hat into the ring. As described by RFK biographer Evan Thomas, quote, And so, Robert Kennedy backed into the race. There was no single moment, no one epiphany, no turning point. The Ted Offensive, the president's indifference to the report of his own commission on racial unrest, the rebirth of Nixon, the changing opinions of his friends, all these were factors, but none was decisive. Kennedy's inner workings were far too complex to be simply charted. His decision-making, certainly on a matter this momentous, was nonlinear. In a sense, the decision was inevitable. Though Johnson had made history with his support for civil rights legislation and in pushing through the ambitious programs of the Great Society, Senator Kennedy, in his legislative work to push progressive agendas forward, was increasingly encountering pushback from the Johnson administration as the riots in various cities across the nation in the summer of 1967 turned public sentiment against increased federal assistance in the war on poverty. While it's beyond the scope of this episode to go too in-depth into this, Robert Kennedy had a particular focus on various segments of the population that were traditionally marginalized, including Native Americans and Hispanic Americans. On March 10, 1968, two days before the New Hampshire primaries, Senator Kennedy flew to California to be present for the end of labor organizer Cesar Chavez's 25-day-long hunger strike as part of the Delano Grape Strike. Again, from Evans, quote, Chavez, the leader of the striking farm workers, had lost 35 pounds and was so weak he could barely talk. Kennedy sat beside him in an unspoken communion. Then he climbed on the roof of a car and started shouting, Viva la huelga! Long live the strike, in Spanish. Chavez later recalled, with a terrible Boston accent. The crowds tore at Kennedy. By that point, Kennedy had already made the fateful decision. On the plane ride to California, he had told one of his advisors that, quote, I'm going to do it. I've got to find a way to get McCarthy out, but I'm going to do it anyway. Though he sat out the New Hampshire primary, the day after the primary, Kennedy was already hinting to the press, quote, 
that he was actively reconsidering his decision not to run. Though there was some initial blowback, on March 16th, Senator Kennedy announced that he was entering the contest and asserted that his focus was, quote, to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities and to close the gap between black and white, between rich and poor. Kennedy attempted to coordinate efforts with McCarthy. He sent his brother, Senator Edward Kennedy, to meet with McCarthy secretly in the early morning before RFK's announcement and offered for the two to divide up the remaining primary contest between them. McCarthy refused this offer. Kennedy's entrance into the race was bad enough, but there was still one more nail in the coffin of McCarthy's chances. Though the New Hampshire primary had been a problematic victory, President Johnson was still officially in the race. Even two days prior to his announcement, Senator Kennedy had offered the president a chance to prevent his entry into the nomination battle. Kennedy met with Secretary of Defense Clark Clifford and offered to decline a run if Johnson would agree, quote, to a reevaluation of his policy in Vietnam and set up a board of Kennedy-designated advisors. Johnson refused this offer and instead continued to talk up his candidacy. The numbers, however, were not in his favor. His approval rating was at 36% in March, and after Kennedy's announcement, a poll came out showing that Kennedy was the favored candidate of 54% of Democrats polled versus 41% supporting Johnson. Despite the gloomy news in the polls, the New York Times still predicted on March 24th that LBJ was likely to get over 65% of the votes at the Democratic National Convention and secure the nomination. As March drew closer to its end, the president had to wonder what the nomination was worth if it was a foregone conclusion that a Republican candidate promising a new path forward would win. Johnson himself, as he noted later, became gravely concerned about the amount of stress he was under and admitted that, quote, I frankly did not believe in 1968 that I could survive another four years of the long hours and unremitting tensions I had just gone through. Though he made plans for a televised address to the nation on the evening of March 31st, up until he began speaking, there was doubt even with his aides as to what he would say. The president showed Vice President Humphrey two drafts of the speech in the morning, one announcing his intentions to withdraw from the presidential race and another without his withdrawal. Though he told Humphrey that he wasn't sure which speech he would give, Johnson did urge him that, quote, if you're going to run, you'd better get ready damn quick. With that, Humphrey left for a previously scheduled trip to Mexico City to sign a nuclear nonproliferation treaty with his future completely up in the air. In the afternoon, the president prepared his aides to make calls to cabinet members and congressional leaders to inform them of his intention not to run, but forbid them from starting their calls until he began his speech. Up until the wire, no one knew what Johnson was going to do. Finally, 9 p.m. arrived, the cameras rolled, and the president began to speak. It was a rather lengthy speech of around 40 minutes, outlining a policy shift and steps the administration was going to take to de-escalate the conflict in Vietnam. But what has been remembered and often replayed since was in the last minute or so when he announced that, quote, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Possibly even more so than Kennedy's entering the race, Johnson exiting the race took the wind out of the sails of the McCarthy campaign. As noted by Theodore White, quote, in 10 seconds, the rationale of their, i.e. the McCarthy campaign, had dissolved. Opposing Lyndon Johnson and his administration had been the reason for McCarthy's entry into the race and was everything around which the campaign was built. Without Johnson, McCarthy couldn't be portrayed, quote, as the plucky outsider who had dared to challenge the president, 
nor could he now run as the embodiment of moral virtue who had defied the odds to make a stand against the war. Jack Germond put it succinctly. McCarthy, quote, was now simply another Democrat after the prize. The candidate and the campaign now had to decide, since what they were against was out of the picture, what they were actually for. On the Republican side, Johnson's announcement was received with cheers. As H.W. Brands notes, quote, suddenly, Republicans could see a clear path to the White House, unimpeded by incumbency. One can imagine, though, that one Republican was kicking himself for the lost opportunity. As we've discussed, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller had been positioned after the New Hampshire primary as a prime candidate to enter the race now that his favorite candidate, Michigan Governor George Romney, was out. And his showing in New Hampshire spoke to there being an audience for him. Other Republican leaders were urging him to run. Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew had organized a, quote, draft Rocky organization in Maryland in January 1968 and took it national in mid-March. What Agnew and other armchair politicos didn't know, though, was that Rockefeller and his advisors had put out feelers among state and local Republican leaders across the nation, and what they found wasn't promising. There was, in fact, quote, even less support for him than when he had first thought of running in 1960. Many of those grassroots leadership positions were now held by Goldwater Republicans. On the morning of March 20th, Rockefeller, in a live broadcast, announced his intentions to not seek the Republican nomination in 1968. He had not told Governor Agnew of this, and Agnew was left with egg on his face as he had invited a group of reporters to watch the broadcast with him in his office at the State House, as he was sure Rockefeller was going to run. Fast forward to March 31st, and after Johnson's announcement, Rockefeller began to seriously rethink his decision. Meanwhile, former Vice President Nixon had been scheduled to make a major speech on Vietnam the evening of March 31st, but as soon as Johnson asked for the time on primetime TV, Nixon canceled his speech. As he had been in flight from Milwaukee when Johnson spoke, it wasn't until he was met at LaGuardia Airport by his aide, Pat Buchanan, that he learned of Johnson's withdrawal from the race. Reporters on the scene asked for his take, and Nixon quipped that, quote, this is the year of the dropouts. First Romney, then Rockefeller, now Johnson. The year 1968 would ultimately come to be known for a series of events, but it would tragically not be anything as quaint as candidates dropping out of the presidential race. Before we get to that, though, we need to briefly discuss Wisconsin. Wisconsin was the next primary state on the calendar, with both the Democratic and Republican primaries on April 2nd. Nixon again won this Republican primary by a slightly larger percentage than he had won in New Hampshire, 79.7%. But there was a new second-place contender. California Governor Ronald Reagan was on the ballot and garnered 10.4% of the vote. Rockefeller got 7,995 write-in votes, 1.6% of those cast. On the Democratic side, McCarthy won the primary with 56.2% of the vote. Despite his announcement a few days prior, President Johnson was still on the ballot, and 34.6% of the voters in the Democratic primary chose him as their candidate. For the first time, though, Senator Robert Kennedy secured some write-in votes. 46,507, or 6.3% of the votes cast. This primary would introduce another name into the mix that we'll need to discuss in more detail shortly. The first gentleman of the state of Alabama and former governor of that state, George Wallace, secured 4,031 votes in the Wisconsin Democratic primary in 1968. Wallace was famous for his segregationist policies as governor and thus had found himself in contention with another leader who, though he had not appeared on a ballot, 
was still a prominent voice in national politics. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been a fixture in the civil rights movement for over a decade by 1968. While it is beyond the scope of this episode to recount his career, it is important to note that he was able to exert political influence through his work, so much so that 11 days into his presidency, President Johnson met with Dr. King. King had worked on Johnson's behalf in the 1964 election, but the relationship between the two broke over the issue of the Vietnam War. King's staunch anti-war stance led Johnson to sideline Dr. King at the 1966 White House Conference on Civil Rights. Thus, in early 1968, King had expressed support for the candidacies of McCarthy and Kennedy, asserting that, quote, both men have the ability of grappling meaningfully and creatively with the problems in the cities and with racism. In the first part of that year, King was heavily involved in furthering the aims of his new initiative, the Poor People's Campaign. And on February 12th, the master plan was finalized for the Poor People's March, a march on the capital city which, over a three-month period, would be a sustained advocacy effort to demand, quote, a $12 billion economic bill of rights guaranteeing employment to all the able-bodied, viable incomes to those unable to work, an end to housing discrimination, and the vigorous enforcement of integrated education. Before that effort began in late April, Dr. King interceded on behalf of striking African-American workers in Memphis, Tennessee. The situation was becoming increasingly volatile, with violence starting to break out, and Dr. King felt that his intercession might be able to keep the focus on the peaceful protest and the grievances that were the cause of the strike. In the early evening of April 4th, as he gathered at his hotel room with friends and colleagues before leaving for dinner at a private residence, Dr. King stepped out onto the second-floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel and was shot and killed. King's assassination sent shockwaves through the nation. Riots broke out in over a 100 cities across the nation that night. In some cities, including Chicago, federal, state, and local officials were still working days later to quell the riots. Ultimately, 46 individuals died in the riots, with 41 of the fatalities being African-Americans and the riots precipitated the largest military deployment for a civil emergency to that point in U.S. history. 21,000 federal troops and 34,000 state guardsmen were deployed at various points in the nation. First Lady Lady Bird Johnson described hearing the news of Dr. King's assassination as, quote, one of those frozen moments, as though the bomb had fallen on us. Meanwhile, Senator Kennedy had just delivered a speech on the issue of hunger in America at the University of Notre Dame when he was told that Dr. King had been shot. And when he arrived at his next stop in Indianapolis, he was informed of King's death. Though warned against continuing with his plans by the mayor of Indianapolis, Kennedy proceeded to 17th and Broadway in the inner city. Those in attendance had gathered earlier and thus were unaware of the events in Memphis. It was Senator Kennedy who delivered the news to them that Dr. King had been assassinated. Sharing his own heartache from the loss of his brother a few years prior, Kennedy told those assembled that, quote, you can be filled with bitterness, with hate, and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country, in great polarization, black people amongst black, white people amongst white, filled with hatred toward one another. Or, we can make the effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend, and to replace that violence that stain of bloodshed that has spread across our land with an effort to understand with compassion and love. 
Both Democratic and Republican candidates took time out from their campaigns to attend the funeral held at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, with Senators Kennedy and McCarthy, New York Governor Rockefeller, and former Vice President Nixon in attendance. After Dr. King's funeral and the shock over his loss started to subside, the candidates turned their attention back to the race while the vice president made his plans of how to get into the race in the first place. For Humphrey, just as it appeared for Republicans, Johnson's withdrawal from the race opened up an opportunity for him to become president. Ultimately, he and his advisors concluded that there was nothing to be gained by entering the primaries. Again, as discussed in previous episodes of the special series, the primaries then were not nearly as important to the presidential nomination process as they are in the present day. Humphrey and his team felt that Kennedy and McCarthy would take each other out through their attacks in the primaries, while the vice president could work behind the scenes to secure enough delegates from non-primary states to win the nomination at the convention. However, there was the danger in adopting this strategy of being labeled as, quote, avoiding a popular test. Part of the decision, though, was out of Humphrey's hands. Some filing dates had already passed, so he would only be able to enter a couple of the remaining primaries anyway. Better to focus on organization and securing delegates than to enter into the fray. Speaking of the fray, this seems as good of a time as any to introduce another player into the mix. George Corley Wallace was born on August 25, 1919, as the first son to George Sr. and Moselle Wallace in Clio, Alabama. Wallace, who folks in the area called George C., grew up in a state of relative affluence thanks to his grandfather, Dr. Oscar Wallace. The family's fortunes, however, would be rocked by the Great Depression, and George Sr., who the younger George would later dub, quote, a true blue Southerner, blamed the trials and tribulations of his family on the North and started to get involved in politics. This would, of course, have an impact on George C., and he would grow up indoctrinated on the New Deal. George C. would see politics firsthand when he became a page in the Alabama Senate starting in January 1935, and Wallace biographer Stephen Letcher asserts that, quote, it is no exaggeration to say that George Wallace arrived at the University of Alabama running for office. After cutting his teeth engaging in campus politics, Wallace graduated from law school in 1942, but though he had proven himself to be a force to be reckoned with, his future was far from certain. Again from Letcher, quote, broken hungry, Wallace relied on his wits and turned to his friends, as he would do so often in future political and personal crises. As he worked various jobs to make ends meet, Wallace also worked to get admitted into the Air Corps Cadet Pilot Program. In October 1942, he was sworn into the Army Air Corps. That year wasn't all work for Wallace, however. He met Lurleen Burns, who, after Wallace began his military service, became his wife in May 1943. Prior to their marriage, George had contracted a serious case of meningitis that left him near death. And after his recovery and their marriage, Wallace used his meningitis as an excuse to get reassigned out of the Air Cadet program in order to ensure that he wasn't separated from Lurleen for a long stretch of time. He would see action in the Pacific as an air engineer on a crew on a B-29 superfortress that participated in the air raids on the Japanese islands in 1945. At the end of the year, he was honorably discharged as a sergeant and turned his attention back to his true interest, politics. Discharged on a Friday, the following Monday, he made his way to Montgomery, Alabama, and, in his military uniform, Wallace went to the governor's office to talk with Governor Chauncey Sparks about getting a job in the state government. Sparks was acquainted with Wallace and had made the offer two years prior that, once Wallace was out of the service, to let him know. 
and the now discharged sergeant was determined to hold him to his promise to have a position waiting for him. With that, George Wallace became an assistant attorney general of the state of Alabama. Only a few months into the job, Wallace took a leave of absence to run for the state legislature and thus became a state representative from Barber County. Wallace campaigned to be an alternate delegate to the 1948 Democratic National Convention and, by luck, the delegate for whom Wallace was assigned as an alternate fell ill, so this newcomer to the political scene ended up at the convention in Philadelphia. Though part of his campaign to be an alternate was that he was, quote, unalterably opposed to nominating Harry S. Truman and the so-called Civil Rights Program, Wallace would be one of a handful of Alabama delegates to remain at the convention when a number of Southern delegates walked out to form the state's rights Democratic Party, the Dixiecrats. By remaining, not only did Wallace strengthen his ties with the new governor of Alabama, Jim Folsom, and the two U.S. senators who all supported Truman, but he also got second the nomination of Senator Richard Russell of Georgia for president, a favorite son nomination that wouldn't go anywhere, but would give Russell and Wallace some publicity. Now, for some who are familiar with later parts of Wallace's career, it may come as a surprise that he was considered more of a moderate in his early days in politics. Wallace's push for the Alabama GI Dependence Act of 1949, which would go on to benefit not just white Alabamians, but also around 10,000 African-American citizens of the state, was, as described by Lesher, quote, the first manifestation of the extraordinary racial schizophrenia that would envelop Wallace's public life. His vigorous determination to promulgate populist ideas and legislation, all of which would benefit both races, overshadowed by his uncompromising support for and intensification of the legal repression of blacks. The seeming discrepancy is understandable only by grasping Wallace's consuming hunger to become governor. All else was subordinated to that singular objective. To help him on his way, he sought out another position which would help to boost his image and political resume. After dismissing a run for Congress as the representative from his district was popular and not planning on going anywhere anytime soon, when he learned of the retirement of J.S. Williams, the longtime judge of the Alabama 3rd Judicial District, Wallace threw his hat into the ring and won election. Though, as noted by Lesher, it came from more of a paternalistic viewpoint rather than a true mindset of racial equality, Judge Wallace's, quote, acts of kindness and his dispensation of justice to black litigants and defendants would be used against him when he decided to run for governor in 1958. Wallace, who was endorsed by the Alabama NAACP, lost that race to John Patterson, whose campaign coordinated with the Ku Klux Klan. Wallace identified the racial issue as being key to his defeat and determined shortly after this loss at the polls to move that issue out of the way. Thus, Wallace would become the poster boy for segregation, and in his 1962 campaign for governor, determined early on to, quote, express his racial views more stridently than ever before, in a campaign which would pit him against his former political ally, former Governor Jim Folsom. As Folsom was more moderate and noticeably intemperate when it came to alcohol, the Wallace campaign would use both against him, and Wallace would go on to win the election. Now, it's beyond the scope of this episode to go into too many of the details of Wallace's tenure as governor, but we must discuss a few notable points that brought his name to national prominence. Wallace set the tone in his inaugural speech in January 1963 when he proclaimed that, quote, Today, I have stood where Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It is very appropriate, then, that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today 
we sound the drum for freedom. In the name of the greatest people that ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. The new governor supported Birmingham Police Chief Bull Connor's efforts to shut down the demonstrations organized by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy, not just with his words, but with 800 law enforcement officers. Wallace faced off against President Kennedy and his administration when it came to integrating the University of Alabama, physically placing himself in front of the door of the admissions building and only stepping aside when President Kennedy federalized the Alabama National Guard and its commander, Lieutenant General Henry Graham, ordered him to step aside. With this national notoriety, it was inevitable that the question came to the mind of Wallace and others as to whether he should run for the presidency. In his showdown with the Kennedy administration, surprisingly, of the tens of thousands of letters and telegrams he had received in support of his segregationist stance, Wallace found that over half came from, quote, areas outside the South, and that he was receiving, quote, hundreds of speaking engagements, many from illustrious universities, including Stanford, Northwestern, and Princeton. This led Wallace and others to wonder if there was, quote, a hidden vein of Northern sympathy that the governor might be able to exploit to win the presidency. And some thoughts started going into what a Wallace primary challenge might look like. By 1964, though, the primary landscape was a bit different. The president with which he had locked horns had been assassinated, and in his place was a fellow Southerner. This did not deter Governor Wallace, though, and in January 1964, he declared his intention to seek the Democratic nomination for president and would spend the next couple of months, quote, barnstorming the West and Midwest. And, as described by Lesher, the more he traveled, the more he felt drawn by the magnetic pull of national notoriety. Ultimately, Wallace would not win any of the primaries, but he did come in second to Johnson in terms of overall vote count, with Johnson winning just over 1.1 million votes in the 1964 Democratic primaries to Wallace's 672,984. A large source of those votes was from northern states like Wisconsin, which gave him over 266,000 votes, Indiana, which gave him nearly 173,000 votes, and the border state of Maryland, which gave him nearly 215,000 votes. As he considered his political future, Governor Wallace had to deal with the problem that the Alabama state constitution forbid a governor from seeking a second consecutive term. After a failed attempt to change the Constitution, he instead set up his wife, Lurleen, as a candidate in the 1966 gubernatorial election. Again, from Lesher, Lurleen's candidacy, quote, was the kind of cheeky, audacious notion that Wallace loved best, the sort that a later generation might call in-your-face politics, designed to thoroughly embarrass his antagonist. It was understood by all that George would be the power behind the throne in a Lurleen-Wallace state administration. Now, the problem was that, around the same time, Lurleen underwent a hysterectomy to remove a pelvic tumor, which was revealed to be malignant. But with the doctor's assurances that it had been caught in time, Lurleen entered the race and was ultimately elected as the first female governor of Alabama. With his power base in Alabama secured, the new first gentleman could turn his attention to a run in 1968. In March 1967, Wallace and his chief aides started work organizing his campaign. Now, while he hoped for Democratic support, Wallace was not necessarily organizing his campaign to win the Democratic nomination. George Wallace was running for president, and he wouldn't be held back by party politics. A few months after work on the campaign got underway, though, 
another problem reared its head. Governor Wallace's cancer had returned, and Lurleen is said to have, quote, told her secretary, this cancer is back. I won't live. The rest of 1967, leading into 1968, would be a dizzying time for the Wallace family, as George continued his push for a presidential run, while Lurleen went back and forth to Houston, Texas, for medical treatments. The treatments, unfortunately, did no good. And by the time George Wallace secured his first votes in the Democratic primary in Wisconsin, Governor Lurleen Wallace was not long for this world. While not wishing to leave a person suffering, this does seem like a good segue to bring us back to the primary battle. Senator Eugene McCarthy would see another primary victory in Pennsylvania, where, as the only candidate officially on the ballot, he won with 71.7% of the vote. Notably, though, with write-ins, Senator Robert Kennedy won 11% of the vote, while Vice President Humphrey won 8.7% of the vote, George Wallace garnered 4% of the vote, President Johnson managed to get 3.6% of the vote, and former Vice President Nixon, in the Democratic primary, mind you, managed to get just over 3,400 votes. On the Republican side, Nixon won the primary in Pennsylvania, though not by as wide of a margin as his previous two wins. Nixon only got 59.7% of the vote in that primary, with Rockefeller coming in second at 18.4%, and Reagan only got 2.8%. Funny enough, all the main Democratic candidates popped into the Republican primary in Pennsylvania that year. In the Republican primary, Senator McCarthy got 6.5% of the vote, Wallace got 4.6%, Kennedy got 3.6%, Humphrey got 1.6%, and even Johnson got 1.1% of the Republican vote. Yes, dear listener, as you can see, this really is that odd of an election. To add to the oddity, three primaries in, two new candidates officially entered the race. On the Democratic side, Vice President Humphrey, in an event at the Shoreham Hotel in Washington, D.C., on April 27th, announced his candidacy and proclaimed that, quote, the future has several names. For the weak, it is the impossible. For the faint-hearted, it is the unknown. For the thoughtful and the valiant, it is ideal. The challenge is urgent. The task is large. The time is now. On to victory. Humphrey's announcement on the 27th wasn't nearly as surprising as that which came three days later. In a move that would catch even his own staff by surprise, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller announced on April 30th that he would seek the Republican nomination for president. That same day, he went on to win the Massachusetts primary with 30% of the vote over favorite son and the only actual candidate on the ballot, Massachusetts Governor John Volp, who came in 499 votes below Rockefeller. Volpe's response to the result? Quote, that's politics. For the Nixon campaign, though, this strong entry of Rockefeller into the race required a rethink, though Nixon's main concern was not Rockefeller, but rather Reagan. As Ambrose asserts, quote, the California governor would certainly be tempted to join Rockefeller in a stop Nixon movement. It was equally obvious that the right wing of the party preferred Reagan to Nixon. They had a little more time to consider their strategy as the next races were uncontested. The Republican organization in the District of Columbia decided prior to their primary to give six delegate votes to Nixon and three to Rockefeller. Meanwhile, Nixon won the Indiana primary unanimously, while Ohio Governor James A. Rhodes, as their favorite son candidate, won the Ohio primary without a challenge. On the Democratic side, one of the newcomers to the race was hard at work on the campaign trail. As described by Thomas, quote, for the first three weeks of April, 
Kennedy crisscrossed the country, drawing huge throngs, trying to prove his popularity to the bosses who controlled the Democratic convention. One of Senator Kennedy's advisors described how people in the crowds, quote, pulled his cufflinks off, tore his clothes, tore ours. In bigger towns, with bigger crowds, it was frightening. Senator McCarthy, meanwhile, tried to shift into a new campaign mode. A speech that he delivered in Indiana on April 28th reflected his new tone, with McCarthy asserting that, quote, the question becomes one of which of us you think could best administer the government, which of us could best unify the country and provide what is called leadership for the days which are ahead. McCarthy managed to win the Kennedy family's native state of Massachusetts with 49.3% of the vote, but write-in votes for Kennedy put him in second place with 27.6%, and Humphrey, only three days into his campaign, managed to come in third, with write-in votes getting him to 17.7% of the total. A week later, Senator Kennedy scored his first victory by winning the primary in the District of Columbia with 62.5% of the vote, while Humphrey got the remainder of the votes. Though Kennedy was favored in the district, a few days prior to the primary, as he was driven around the city touring streets that still showed damage from rioting, At one point, a crowd nearly tipped over the car he was riding in. The other primary held on May 7th reflected more difficulties for the Democratic Party in the 1968 election season. Indiana was a challenge for both Kennedy and McCarthy as it was more conservative than the other primary states to that point. They also had to deal with a favorite son candidacy in the form of Indiana Governor Roger Brannigan. Brannigan was seen as being a stand-in candidate for President Johnson and Vice President Humphrey and he was quite popular in the state and headed a strong political organization that was already well-entrenched. Further, he was motivated by the possibility of being named as Humphrey's running mate if he were able to deliver the Hoosier state to the administration. Though Kennedy was attacked for changing his language depending on his audience, including attempts to paint himself as the, quote, law and order candidate when speaking to more socially conservative audiences, he did continue to hammer on his theme of attacking the problem of poverty and managed to win over voters in Indiana. As described by Thomas, quote, Kennedy's edginess was effective with voters standing in a crowd, feeling his vulnerability and empathy. McCarthy, meanwhile, focused on garnering support through TV and radio. Again from Thomas, quote, McCarthy didn't bother with showy and exhausting rallies, but with his offhand sound bites, he could appeal to thousands and sometimes millions of voters over the airwaves. Ultimately, Kennedy would be the victor in Indiana, winning 42.3% of the vote to Brannigan's 30.7%, while McCarthy came in a distant third with only 27% of the vote. Though May 7th gave Kennedy two much-needed victories, McCarthy was still viable in the race, and his campaign turned its attention to Nebraska, where McCarthy was able to devote new financial resources from unions who saw him as the best bet to stop Kennedy. Despite these new campaign funds, which replenished coffers that had been nearly emptied in the Wisconsin primary, Democrats in Nebraska also gave their support to Kennedy, with a resounding 51.7% of the vote to McCarthy's 31.2%. Humphrey got a meager 7.4% of the vote through write-in ballots, while President Johnson, whose name was still on the ballot, got 5.6% of the vote. The Republican primary in Nebraska was a bit more decisive, with Nixon winning 70% of the vote, with Reagan a distant second at 21.3%. In his second major primary since his win in Massachusetts, Rockefeller was an even further distant third, 
with write-in votes only getting him 5.1% of the vote in the Cornhusker state. Knowing that, having gotten into the race so late, he would be facing an uphill battle in terms of the primaries. Rockefeller instead turned his attention to, quote, an advertising campaign that included 42 television spots per week on 100 stations in 30 cities and weekly full-page ads in 54 large circulation newspapers in 40 cities. The spots and ads were concentrated in 13 states, which collectively held 60% of the nation's population. The only southern state included in this was Texas. But Rockefeller did have a Rockefeller for President group supporting him in New Orleans, which had been organized by a Tulane University graduate student named Newt Gingrich, who would himself go on to national prominence decades later. Reagan's supporters had made more of an effort in Nebraska, but as the state had been the strongest state for Nixon in his 1960 run for the presidency, it was largely seen as being in Nixon's column, and the former vice president was the only candidate to campaign on the ground there. Reagan supporters, meanwhile, had their eyes on another primary at the end of May, the one in Oregon. For the Nixon campaign, Oregon was seen as a key opportunity prior to the convention to shut down the Reagan and Rockefeller campaigns. While he could have fought it out with the governor, Nixon had decided to concede California to Reagan, so Reagan was running unopposed for that primary set to be held on June 4th. Reagan and Rockefeller's campaigns both spent money in Oregon, but neither spent as much as Nixon and neither candidate actually campaigned on the ground. Nixon did, however. Despite Rockefeller having won the Oregon primary four years earlier, Nixon would come out on top with a resounding 65% of the vote, while Reagan only garnered 20.4% of the votes, and write-in votes for Rockefeller put him in a distant third place with 11.6% of the vote. Beyond just the size of the victory, the Oregon primary gave credence to the strength of Nixon's candidacy as he had, at this point, won every primary he actually entered, having conceded Massachusetts and Ohio to the favorite Sun candidates. In his remark upon winning the Oregon primary, Nixon asserted that, quote, the chances of my nail being derailed are pretty well eliminated. On the Democratic side, however, the picture was a bit less clear. While the Democratic candidates were still competing, President Johnson had turned his attention to a new peace initiative aimed at resolving the Vietnam conflict. The negotiations, which began on May 13th in Paris, quickly came to a seemingly unresolvable standstill as the administration refused to budge from its positions and the U.S. military stepped up operations in Vietnam. Meanwhile, Johnson and the federal government were facing domestic pressure as well. Despite the loss of Dr. King, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference moved forward with King's plans to march on Washington, D.C. as part of the Poor People's Campaign. In May, they established a temporary city of, quote, 3,000 to 5,000 African-American, Mexican-American, American Indian, Puerto Rican, and white Appalachian poor people, which was dubbed Resurrection City on the National Mall. During the six weeks that the city remained in place, they received press coverage, quote, exposing the bleak conditions impoverished people experienced on a daily basis. As described by Amy Nathan Wright in her dissertation on the Poor People's Campaign, quote, The physical space of Resurrection City and the PPC's daily protests challenged stereotypes of the poor that characterized them as the despondent, lazy other, trapped in a vicious cycle of poverty due to their inability to change their behavior and embrace white, middle-class values. Whether intentionally or not, the efforts of the Poor People's Campaign 
served to highlight that President Johnson's political focus had been distracted from the war on poverty as the war in Vietnam demanded more of his attention. And one of the candidates running to succeed Johnson agreed with these social activists that the former was deserving of more attention. His presidential campaign did not end Senator Kennedy's commitment to support efforts to combat poverty. Shortly after his entry into the nomination battle, Kennedy appeared before the Senate Banking Committee in support of, quote, the idea of tax incentives for targeted housing in the inner city. He left the campaign trail numerous times in the spring to meet with Native Americans in various parts of the nation, with the only meeting that might bring him an advantage in a primary being his trip to the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota in April. By and large, political commentators and advisors thought that these side trips might hinder his campaign. But to Kennedy, his campaign was built on these types of efforts. Against the advice of some of his advisors, he authorized, quote, a grassroots development initiative that sought to link his campaign with anti-poverty community organizations and racial minority groups. As described by Schmidt, quote, the grassroots effort embodied Kennedy's ideal of a direct, responsive relationship between the federal level and the local residents of poor communities. And he clearly envisioned the strategy as important, not only for the primaries, but also for a potential fall campaign. Before they could get to that, though, Kennedy and his staff had to deal with Oregon. Oregon, by its demographic nature, was more likely to support Senator McCarthy. The population was largely white, well-educated, and middle-class, groups that McCarthy polled well with. Kennedy, however, did himself no favors in the effort. As he assumed that he would be riding away from his recent victories in Indiana and Nebraska, Kennedy directed his best campaign staffers to work in either California or New York, and thus, the organization on the ground in Oregon was weak. Rather than sticking to his guns and focusing his efforts on the larger primary in California, Kennedy instead got down into the weeds and campaigned hard in Oregon, calling the primary a must-win. Further, when McCarthy tried to corner Kennedy at a planned campaign stop in order to press him to have a debate, Kennedy made his way back to his car, only to find it, quote, temporarily blocked by three McCarthy staffers shouting, Chicken! Coward! An event which was, of course, captured by television cameras that had been there to cover Kennedy's appearance. To little surprise, McCarthy won Oregon with 44% of the vote to Kennedy's 38%, which gave McCarthy's campaign a much-needed shot in the arm and made a win in California even more crucial for Kennedy's viability. By the time the two campaigns focused in on California, the animosity between the Kennedy and McCarthy camps had become a raging fire. McCarthy had taken to blaming the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations rather than Johnson for the Vietnam War, and declared publicly that, quote, under no circumstances would I join with Robert Kennedy to stop Hubert Humphrey. In terms of policy, though, the two men were largely in agreement, as was displayed when the two met for a debate in California prior to the primary. A commentator for Time magazine described the debate as, quote, downright dull, and even the moderator noted during that debate that, quote, there don't seem to be very many differences between you, really. Kennedy quipped after the debate that McCarthy, quote, didn't do his homework. Demographically, California was more diverse, and thus, the Kennedy campaign was re-energized. The day after losing in Oregon, the senator was driven in a convertible through predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhoods in Los Angeles and was met by enthusiastic crowds. As he went up and down the state campaigning, the energy was clearly with Kennedy, though the candidate himself was exhausted. On the final day of campaigning before the election, Kennedy traveled to Los Angeles, then San Francisco, before returning back to Long Beach and Watts, 
then finally making his way to San Diego before returning for the evening to Los Angeles. When the senator awoke the next morning, it was June 4th, and the polls opened in California, New Jersey, and South Dakota. To get the other primaries out of the way before returning to the California Democratic primary, New Jersey was another decisive win for former Vice President Nixon on the Republican side, with 81.1% of the vote. On the Democratic side, Senator McCarthy won with 36.1% of the vote, but Senator Kennedy was close behind with 31.3%. Humphrey came in third with 20.3% of the vote, while Alabama first gentleman George Wallace was fourth with 5.1%. As the only candidate on the ballot in South Dakota, Nixon won the Republican primary, while Kennedy won the Democratic primary with 49.5% of the vote. President Johnson, still on the ballot from when he was in the race, came in second at 30%, while McCarthy was a distant third with 20.4% of the vote. As previously stated, the California Republican primary had already been conceded to Reagan, so there was no contest there. All eyes were on the Democratic side of the aisle. For Kennedy, he needed a win in California, and he needed to make peace with the McCarthy camp. Humphrey was working behind the scenes to secure delegates from non-primary states, So the only way Kennedy could hope to challenge the vice president at the convention would be to unify the liberal wing of the party. The first network exit polls in the afternoon showed Kennedy with the lead. And as the vote count started coming in, showing Kennedy with a decisive lead, he sent a message to McCarthy that, quote, if he withdraws now and supports me, I'll make him secretary of state. Kennedy's victory celebration had been organized at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And Thomas describes the scene as follows. Quote, the royal suite at the ambassador was a jolly, noisy cocktail party of the favored. There were entertainers and celebrities and authors and journalists on their second and third drinks. There was a growing sense of Kennedy being the candidate to beat. Though still realistic about the battles yet to come between June and November, Senator Kennedy called one of his chief aides and told him that, quote, I feel now for the first time that I've shaken off the shadow of my brother. I feel I made it on my own. Just before midnight, Senator Kennedy and his wife Ethel made their way to the ballroom to declare victory. Kennedy, in his remarks, called for an end to, quote, the divisions, the violence, the disenchantment, and asserted that, quote, we are a great country, an unselfish country, and a compassionate country. Once his speech was done, Kennedy tried to make his way through the crowd to speak with reporters, but finding the ballroom crowded, the hotel maitre d' escorted him, quote, through a back entrance into a dark corridor. Even here, Kennedy was surrounded by kitchen staff hoping to shake the senator's hand. Then, a shot rang out, and another, and another. Kennedy had unknowingly been guided into the vicinity of a, quote, mentally unstable, unemployed drifter named Sirhan Sirhan, who, quote, sprayed bullets around the room. One of the bullets hit Kennedy in the head, and down he went onto the concrete floor. Sirhan was taken down and an emergency crew was called for. However, with his wife Ethel by his side, Kennedy lost consciousness and would never wake back up. As people in the ballroom realized what was going on in the back, a woman screamed, quote, No, God, no. It's happened again. The senator was taken into surgery, but though his body lingered on in a coma for just under 26 hours, his brain was no longer functioning. And at 1.44 a.m., On June 6, 1968, Robert Francis Kennedy passed away. Death did not stop President Johnson from continuing to bear ill will towards his former attorney general. 
Kennedy biographer Evan Thomas wrote that Johnson seemed to be gathering information for a new assault on Kennedy's reputation in the lead-up to the Democratic National Convention, and Johnson had to be convinced by his aides to allow Robert to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery beside his brother. Senator McCarthy likewise maintained his grudge against Kennedy, even in the face of tragedy. When told that Kennedy was shot, McCarthy was heard by his aides saying that Kennedy was, quote, demagoguing to the last blaming Kennedy and his support for Israel, as expressed in their debate, as, quote, provoking Sirhan Sirhan. These two, however, would be in the minority of folks who did not seem to feel heartfelt remorse at the loss of Senator Kennedy. As Thomas writes, while Kennedy's body lay for viewing at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City for a day and two nights, quote, lines of mourners snaked for 25 blocks outside the cathedral, waiting in the wilting heat to pass by his coffin. Democrats and Republicans again gathered for the funeral, with the attendees including President Johnson, Vice President Humphrey, Senator McCarthy, Governor Rockefeller, Governor Romney, and former Vice President Nixon. In an unintentional tribute to his work fighting against economic disparity, at his funeral, Cesar Chavez and a few other farm workers who had traveled to attend could not find anywhere to sit, so they stood where there was room. Unbeknownst to them, they were standing in front of the delegation from the U.S. Congress. One of Kennedy's aides, Peter Edelman, later called the symbolism of this scene at his funeral, quote, such a nice touch in line with Kennedy's legacy. Of course, the unanswerable question that all who study the life of Robert Kennedy are left with is, what if? Even Kennedy, on the night of the California triumph, had quipped to a radio reporter who had asked him how he planned to overcome Humphrey's growing delegate count to win the nomination that, quote, I'll just have to struggle for it. Newsweek had just published an estimated delegate count at the end of May, which had Humphrey 32 and a half delegate votes from claiming the nomination outright. And even in national opinion polls, including one just before Kennedy's death, Humphrey was at 40%, while Kennedy was at 31%. Senator McCarthy, meanwhile, had already planned, in the event of a Kennedy victory in California, to stay in the contest in the hopes that Humphrey and Kennedy would deadlock and he would be turned to as a compromise candidate. McCarthy scored victories in the Illinois primary on June 18th, where he won 38.6% of the vote, then a week later secured 62 of the 123 New York delegates. In both contests, Humphrey had come in far behind, and in a show of sympathy, voters in the Illinois Democratic primary awarded 33.7% of their votes to the late Senator Robert Kennedy's brother, Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts. The next stop for the remaining candidates would be the National Party Convention in Chicago, Illinois, but they would find that yet another candidate was entering the race. Oh yes, dear listener, Senator George McGovern of South Dakota decided to throw his hat in the ring on August 10th to rally the late Senator Kennedy's supporters and to provide, quote, more dynamic and heartfelt leadership to the anti-war faction of the party. Meanwhile, George Wallace's team was still working to secure a place for him on the ballot in November in all 50 states. Then, as now, no small feat for a third-party candidate. As explained by Nelson, this meant in a number of states gathering the signatures of a certain percentage of voters, and at times there were special conditions which made it even more challenging, such as in New York, where the signatures had to include residents from at least 50 of the state's 62 counties. As part of this battle for ballot access, Wallace had been forced to name a running mate early. On February 14th, he had announced, quote, former Georgia Governor Marvin Griffin as his interim vice presidential running mate. 
This interim status did not guarantee Griffin the spot, and Wallace made clear the pick was solely to allow his third party to get on the ballot in some states. Despite these hurdles, Wallace was finding a good amount of support for his candidacy across the nation. Though they only needed 12,000 signatures in New York, the Wallace campaign managed to get 107,000 signatures to get him on the ballot in that state. As the election year went on, though, Wallace was hit by a personal as well as political challenge when, on May 6th, his wife, Alabama Governor Lurleen Wallace, passed away. Wallace, who was with Lurleen when she died, quote, suspended all campaign activities and went into virtual seclusion for a month. In June, though, when he turned his focus back to his campaign, he found his fundraising abilities in Alabama limited. With neither him nor Lurleen serving as the chief executive of the state and the new governor, Albert Brewer, more focused on building up his own political capital through, quote, the state's contract writing purse strings from the governor's office that Wallace had counted on controlling for his own purposes, Wallace would have to regroup. Thus, the former governor shifted to a more, quote, dollar and change form of fundraising that included $25 a plate dinners and a plastic collection bucket being passed around at rallies. Though it wasn't what Wallace would have preferred, as noted by Nelson, quote, it had the effect of giving many of his supporters a sense of ownership in his campaign through their investment of time collecting signatures or money placed in the bucket. Despite these challenges, Wallace remained on the attack, striking at both Democratic and Republican candidates. As the head of a party he was creating, he didn't have to deal with primaries and courting delegates like the other candidates. He was able to focus his campaign throughout 1968 on the election in November and was pretty steadily polling at 14-17% in the national polls. Naturally, Wallace used coded language to play on racial prejudices. In his attacks on quote-unquote big government and his platform of quote law and order, running your own schools, and protecting property rights, Wallace didn't have to mention race for the electorate to understand that he was, in fact, talking about race. When pulling together his new party, most commonly known as the American Independent Party, but which, due to various state laws, had six names total that appeared as the party affiliation on the ballot, Wallace constantly had to work to keep the party operation under his direct control. Local supporters had started putting forward candidates for local, state, or congressional office under the American Independent Party banner, but Wallace quickly squashed those efforts as he was afraid that these other candidates, quote, might turn out to be embarrassing extremists. On the Republican side, though Nixon had secured yet another decisive victory in the polls with the Illinois primary on June 11th, Rockefeller and Reagan's supporters were still making the case for their viability. The governor of New York used polling data as a scorecard to which he could point to show that he was a better candidate to run against the Democrats than Nixon. Indeed, as it looked like Humphrey was close to securing the delegates needed to win on the first ballot, a poll in late June showed Rockefeller over Humphrey by a point, while Humphrey won by five points in the hypothetical matchup against Nixon. Reagan supporters, meanwhile, focused their efforts on winning over delegates from the South. F. Clifton White, who had been instrumental in getting the nomination for Goldwater in 1964, was now deploying a similar strategy for Reagan. In terms of delegates, Reagan already had a major advantage over his competitors, with the 86 delegates of the California delegation in his pocket. Meanwhile, though still claiming to not be a candidate, Reagan had engaged in a multi-state speaking tour. With each speaking engagement, Reagan got more attention and began to look and sound more like a candidate. 
As the party convention in Miami Beach drew closer, he sent a telegraph to his unofficial campaign chairman that, quote, I do not believe the nomination is locked up for any candidate, and I do believe it will be an open convention. My name will be placed in nomination. Though Nixon was the political insider, it was clear that he didn't energize audiences in the same way that candidates like Reagan did. This didn't mean that Nixon didn't have a few more tricks up his sleeve to combat any momentum Reagan or Rockefeller may have. He had canceled all campaign activities for two weeks after the death of the late Senator Kennedy, but this didn't mean that Nixon wasn't hard at work to use those two weeks to his advantage. He used the time to weigh the pros and cons of each potential vice presidential running mate and sent letters to around 300 Republican leaders in order to get their thoughts on the matter. Nixon also worked to secure former President Eisenhower's endorsement prior to the convention. Eisenhower, however, remained committed to staying above the fray. Finally, in mid-July, while Eisenhower was at Walter Reed Hospital recovering from his fifth heart attack, Nixon went to visit him and pressed him on the matter. Whether out of genuine affection or he was just tired of being pestered, Ike replied, quote, Dick, I don't want there to be any more question about this. You're my choice, period and promised to make this publicly known on the opening day of the Republican National Convention. This, however, was not good enough for Nixon. Once he started thinking, he began to wonder whether the endorsement would be buried in the news cycle with other, less important endorsements as the convention began, or what if something happened to Eisenhower before the convention? He had, after all, just had his fifth heart attack. After additional prodding, Eisenhower called the news media in on July 18th. As described by Ambrose, quote, Dressed in a bathrobe, seated in a wheelchair, painfully thin, intense and serious, he, Eisenhower, read a statement in a low voice. He said he was supporting Dick Nixon for president and cited as his principal reason my admiration of his personal qualities, his intellect, acuity, decisiveness, warmth, and above all, his integrity. Having secured Eisenhower's endorsement, Nixon traveled to Montauk Point on Long Island in late July to look over the responses he had received and consider his possibilities for a running mate. As the convention neared, Governor Rockefeller continued to push for his candidacy, taking his case to the annual meeting of the Republican Governors Association in mid-July. Unfortunately for Rocky, the polls were starting to turn against him, and he proved unable to win over former supporters like Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew, who he had burned in his initial decision not to run. By the end of the month, a Gallup poll was released showing Nixon ahead of McCarthy by five percentage points and ahead of Humphrey in that matchup by two points. Rockefeller, meanwhile, was only leading McCarthy in that hypothetical matchup by a point and was even with Humphrey. Rockefeller's hopes of securing the nomination depended on the favorite Sun candidates not dropping out and throwing their delegates to Nixon. And you'd best believe that the Nixon camp was approaching those candidates about doing just that, including but not limited to Governor Reagan. The appeal to Reagan on Nixon's behalf came from none other than Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Goldwater wrote to Reagan on June 19th, advising him to throw his delegates and his support to the former vice president. Reagan, however, was increasingly feeling in a position to challenge, and thus, starting on July 17th, held meetings with various delegates from the South. While only securing second ballot and third ballot promises from a handful of delegations, Reagan's aim was more to keep them from committing to another candidate until they could all come together at the convention in Miami Beach. This pledge hypothetically helped Rockefeller as well. If Reagan and Rockefeller's supporters could work together to keep the favorite son candidates in the mix during the first ballot, 
and divert enough delegates from Nixon, Nixon wouldn't win on the first ballot. And it was anyone's guess after that as to who would end up with the nomination. It was in this spirit that the governors of the two most populous states of the Union traveled to Miami Beach for the beginning of the Republican National Convention. The convention, quote, had a surface tranquility when it began on Monday, August 5th, despite the work being done behind the scenes to try to prevent Nixon from running away with the nomination. The credentials of only one delegate were challenged, and the report of the Rules Committee was approved without any discussion. Rockefeller, meanwhile, was working to convince key favorite Sun candidates to stay in the race, while on the first day of the convention, quote, the California delegation passed a resolution asking Reagan to shed his favorite Sun cloak and become a leading bona fide candidate for president. Reagan feigned shock, but as the first candidate to arrive on the scene, and as someone who on the same day met with the delegations from Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, and Nebraska, it was clear to everyone that Reagan had been quote-unquote bona fide for a while. As described at the time by New Mexico Governor David Cargo, quote, It's like a woman who's eight and a half months pregnant announcing she's going to have a baby. In all, 12 names were put into the nomination contest, and each additional name threatened to take the nomination away from Nixon. Thus, the former vice president began a charm offensive to try to keep the Southern delegations in his camp. An estimate from CBS News on Tuesday evening found Nixon remaining in a solid lead with 628 delegates. Unfortunately for him, this was still 39 votes shy of the nomination, and Rockefeller had jumped up to 260, while Reagan was down to 181. When it came time to formally nominate candidates, the person who delivered the speech putting Nixon's name into the contest was none other than Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew, who proclaimed that, quote, We are a nation in crisis, victimized by crime and conflict, frustrated by fear and failure. A nation torn by war wants a restoration of peace. A nation plagued by disorder wants a renewal of order. A nation haunted by crime wants a respect for the law. A nation wrenched by division wants a rebirth of unity. At this moment of history, the Republican Party has the duty to put forward a man, a man to not only match this moment, but to master it. The roll call would prove that Nixon had indeed mastered the moment, as he ended up with 692 votes on the first ballot, 25 more than were needed to win the nomination. As soon as the roll call ended, Reagan made his way up to the podium, and the chair of the California delegation requested permission for the governor to be able to address the convention. The convention chair, House Minority Leader Gerald R. Ford of Michigan, ruled that the motion was out of order, and Reagan was left, quote, standing awkwardly on the podium. Finally, he was allowed to deliver a quick speech in which he made a motion for Nixon's nomination to be unanimous, and it, quote, passed with no audible dissent. The question on everyone's mind then was who would be Nixon's running mate. Nixon had already been down this road before. In 1960, his choice had been U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., but, as Nelson asserts, Lodge had proved to be, quote, a lazy campaigner who occasionally embarrassed Nixon with off-message remarks. That would not do this time. He wanted someone who fit the mold that he himself had set as vice president, quote, loyal, hardworking, and willing to relentlessly attack the opposition so that the president could take the high road and appear presidential. Nixon also didn't want someone who would grab too much of the attention from the top of the ticket. Indeed, though of course names like Rockefeller and Reagan had been tossed about, and in particular Reagan was the top choice of numerous Nixon aides, 
polls were showing that none of the top names would add much to the ticket. Though it seems that Nixon came to the convention with a choice in mind and had possibly planted the seed in the candidate's mind, he held meetings in the wee morning hours of Thursday, August 8th, quote, with varied groups, totaling about 50 party leaders, members of his own staff, and other supporters, including Reverend Billy Graham, to discuss the choice of the running mate. In the first couple of meetings, his choice's name did not come up, so Nixon himself added it into the mix. Despite this, it doesn't seem like anyone was really enthusiastic about the choice except for Nixon. Finally, Nixon got Senator Goldwater to the side and asked him, quote, Could you live with Agnew? To which Goldwater replied, quote, Hell yes. He's the best man you could have. He's been firm, and so what if he's not known? No vice president ever is. Shortly after noon that Thursday, Nixon announced Agnew as his running mate, and the prevailing question of the press and the public became, Spiro who? Agnew was far from being a nationally known name, but in terms of what Nixon was looking for, it's clear as to why Governor Agnew was his choice. He was little known, while Lodge had been a nationally famous name both in his own right and with the prominence of his family in American politics. What little notoriety Agnew had came from his handling of riots in Baltimore in the aftermath of the King assassination. He called the black leaders of the city to meet in the state capital of Annapolis to discuss the situation and proceeded, rather than asking for their help to restore order, to instead blame the hundred or so leaders assembled for the riots. He accused them of being, quote, circuit riding, Hanoi visiting, caterwauling, riot inciting, burn America down type of leaders. While this made liberal Republicans who had previously supported Agnew turn from him, Nixon was noted at the time as observing, quote, that guy Agnew is really an impressive fellow. He's got guts. He's got a good attitude. As Nixon had taken into consideration Wallace's challenge from the right, it would help having a running mate with more of the law and order credentials, but who, as Agnew was not well-known nationally, was still identified by Republicans in other parts of the nation as being more moderate. Nixon could also relate to Agnew on a personal level, as both came from more humble beginnings. And it didn't hurt that Agnew was from a state whose, quote, permanent status was of geographical confusion. Is Baltimore a southern city or an eastern city? Liberal Republicans were aghast at the selection of Agnew and rallied an effort to nominate Michigan Governor George Romney as Nixon's running mate, but it was to no avail. Agnew won the nomination at the convention by 1,119 votes to 186 for Romney. With that, the Republican ticket was set, and all eyes turned to the Democrats who were preparing to assemble in Chicago. Senator Kennedy's assassination left Senator Eugene McCarthy with a unique opportunity to rally the anti-war faction of the Democratic Party. McCarthy, however, threw the opportunity away by continuing to antagonize Kennedy's supporters. Gun control legislation was introduced in Congress shortly after Kennedy's death, but instead of embracing the opportunity presented, McCarthy quipped on June 16th that, quote, you really ought not to try to put through legislation under panic conditions. He also did not capitalize on favorable polling numbers, such as a Gallup poll released just prior to the convention that showed Humphrey falling behind Nixon by 16 points in a hypothetical matchup, compared to McCarthy versus Nixon, where McCarthy was only down by 5 percentage points. A key problem, according to Nelson, was the structure of the campaign. From Nelson, quote, Organizationally, the McCarthy campaign had always been a mess at the top, plagued by competing power centers, and the candidate's preference for sycophants and artistic hangers-on. Even McCarthy admitted the issues, asserting that, quote, We may not be very well organized at the top, 
but we're the best organized campaign at the bottom than there's ever been in the history of the country. Any advantages that this decentralized campaign structure offered in the primaries were erased when it came to the convention, which would require coordination of efforts to reach out to delegations and individual delegates to build support. McCarthy's failure to unite the liberal wing of the party ultimately had devastating consequences for any possibility of his winning the nomination. By not taking up the mantle, McCarthy unwillingly invited in Senator George McGovern's last-minute challenge. The senator from South Dakota had been a close ally of Senator Kennedy, and several former Kennedy aides reached out to McGovern during the funeral proceedings to urge him to take up the quote-unquote fallen torch. After getting assurances that Robert's brother Ted was not intending to run, McGovern agreed to enter the contest. The campaign which ultimately benefited the most from the unfortunate and untimely exit of Kennedy, however, was that of Vice President Hubert Humphrey. Given the animosity that existed between the McCarthy and Kennedy camps, many Kennedy supporters turned Humphrey shortly after the assassination as the only alternative to McCarthy. Humphrey was a known factor who had long been a staunch supporter of civil rights. Just as with McCarthy, though, Humphrey likewise did not capitalize on the opportunities presented to him. Instead of taking control of the situation, he allowed himself to be, as Solberg described him, quote, the man in the middle, tied to a president who dominated him, pulled by all the forces on the Democratic left that demanded a candidate who stood for anything different from Nixon. Anyone who knows anything about Lyndon Johnson can imagine that it was not easy to be Johnson's vice president. With that in mind, imagine the difficulty of trying to run for president while serving as Johnson's vice president. Johnson's main motivation in stepping out of the race in March had been the thought of potentially losing a matchup against Robert Kennedy in the primary. With the senator from New York out of the equation, President Johnson yet again toyed with the idea of re-entering the nomination battle. Johnson was not liking being a lame duck president. In a staff meeting on June 25th, he discussed, quote, recent press reports that the White House staff is tired, that many officials are soon leaving, and that the machinery of government is grinding to a halt. Johnson was a man of action, and he intended to continue to govern until the last moment of his presidency. While he sought out new ideas and new proposals, the president was also dealing with the realities of the final days of a presidency. Folks were moving on and time was moving forward. This did not, however, have to be the reality, as the party had not chosen a nominee yet, and without even being an active candidate, Johnson had shown up as the choice of a good number of Democratic voters in the primaries, much more so than his vice president. Johnson ended up with 5.1% of the votes cast in Democratic primaries that year, while Humphrey had only garnered 2.2% of the votes. For Johnson, who had already earned a place on some ballots prior to his withdrawal from the race, it was easier than it was for Humphrey. But still, even his approval ratings were starting to bounce back, with 43% of Americans approving of the job he was doing as president versus 42% disapproving, the first time in five months that Johnson had a net positive approval rating. A straw poll in mid-July found Johnson beating Nixon by six percentage points. With the Humphrey campaign seemingly floundering, Johnson started to consider whether he might be the best candidate after all to ensure a Democratic victory in November. To Hubert Humphrey, his consistently loyal vice president, this potential change of plans was a slap in the face. As Humphrey himself stated, quote, The president didn't run because he knew he couldn't make it, and he clothed me with nothing. Humphrey's advisors started to question whether his ties to the Johnson administration were a help or a hindrance. 
and some aides started to recommend that Humphrey resign from the vice presidency so that he could run a more independent campaign. Though Humphrey started to make moves to put some distance between him and Johnson through a planned speech on Vietnam in which he would attempt to appeal to the anti-war faction of the party, the president, when presented with a draft of the speech by Humphrey, quickly shut down the notion, warning Humphrey that it would, quote, endanger the chances of peace and put the soldiers in the field, including Johnson's sons-in-law, at risk. Johnson even threatened to, quote-unquote, destroy Humphrey's chances for winning the election if he made the speech. The draft was quietly filed away, never to be delivered. From that point on, Johnson, quote, branded Humphrey as weak and disloyal, though Humphrey continued to follow the president's marching orders, even to his own detriment. Humphrey did work to bring about compromises in the party platform, in particular with the plank regarding the situation in Vietnam. And ultimately, thanks to the negotiations conducted by Humphrey's representative, Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine, he was able to secure a draft that was acceptable to all factions of the party. All that is, except for President Johnson, though it had been cleared with folks in the administration. The evening before the convention, upon Humphrey's arrival in Chicago, he and his team learned that Johnson, who was secluded down at his ranch in Texas, had said the draft was not acceptable. Humphrey and his team then went to work, and the vice president seemed determined to take a stand against the administration with a new draft, which called for an end to the bombing in North Vietnam. Ultimately, though, Humphrey would again capitulate when Johnson pushed back, and the Vietnam plank of the platform ended up being, quote, a majority plank shaped to suit the president and a minority plank offered by the McCarthy-McGovern forces and no Humphrey Plank at all. This was only one of many incidents in the days leading up to the convention, which pointed to the contention ahead. Three days prior to the convention, anti-war protesters already began arriving and demonstrating in Chicago. As the convention drew closer, confrontations between protesters and police became ever more violent, and the night before the start of the convention found, quote, protesters hurling rocks and bottles at police cars and the cops indiscriminately attacking demonstrators. It had gone from a powder keg to a raging inferno, even before the gavel called the convention into session. The convention site, like everything else, had been a point of contention between Johnson and Humphrey. Johnson had chosen the site the year prior, still thinking that he would be the nominee. But as the convention had drawn closer, Humphrey had requested that it be moved to Miami Beach, as there were strikes planned, quote, by Chicago's electrical workers and taxi and bus drivers that would impact the convention. Johnson would not relent, and thus, Humphrey arrived in the Windy City on Saturday, August 24th, to see what lay in store. Logistically, it was a nightmare. As noted by Nelson, quote, Chicago's convention hall, the International Amphitheater, was in one part of the town. The old stockyards, where flies still buzzed everywhere, including around the speaker's podium, and the hotels for delegates, alternates, the media, and other attendees, were in another part of town, about five miles away. Fences topped by barbed wire had been put around the amphitheater, and orders had been given to, quote, city workers to gather up loose rocks and paving stones and to seal manhole covers with tar for several blocks in all directions. The convention hall was soon referred to as Fort Daly, after Chicago Mayor Richard J. Daly, who had been the one to convince Johnson to hold the convention there that year in the first place, and was now directing the security effort. The tumult outside paralleled the uncertainty inside the convention, as yet again it looked like another Kennedy might be shaking up the race. 
Senator Ted Kennedy had announced on July 26 that he would not allow himself to be considered for the vice presidential nomination, but there was a notable lack of removing himself from consideration for the presidential nomination. The Friday before the convention, he sent a trusted aide to Chicago to see what his prospects might look like. The day the convention began, the aide reported back that by entering the mix, Ted could at least deny Humphrey a first ballot victory. By Tuesday afternoon, Kennedy's aide was meeting with Senator McCarthy, with the senator offering, quote, to withdraw his candidacy after his name was placed in nomination and then urge his delegates to vote for Kennedy. Though, of course, he had to add in that, quote, I could never have done this for Bobby. McCarthy was not one for letting grudges die. As the news of a potential Kennedy upset became more widely known, it had an unintended consequence. Favorite son candidates from the South decided to endorse Humphrey rather than let their names be thrown in to complicate matters to Kennedy's favor. Senator Kennedy ultimately realized that this last-minute gambit was a lost cause and opted out of a challenge. Thus, when the ballot was finally called, Humphrey won resoundingly with 1,759 and a fourth of the votes, 67% of the total, to McCarthy's 601 and McGovern's 146 and a half. The larger battle was in procedures, and in those, Humphrey did not provide strong leadership. You may recall from the special episode on the history of National Party conventions that I mentioned the unit rule, which meant that a state delegation could, quote, cast its vote unanimously for whichever candidate or position a majority of delegates from the state favored. This rule had been in place since the early days of Democratic conventions, and by the mid-20th century, had been utilized by Southern delegations to give them extra bargaining power when it came time for the convention. However, Senator McCarthy and his forces, realizing that this would work against them, put forward a rule to abolish the unit rule at the 1968 convention. In a compromise move, Humphrey offered to support this proposal, but this naturally infuriated the Southern delegations. Despite efforts to thwart this push, the unit rule was in fact abolished at this convention, but Humphrey would not be seen as playing a key leadership role in this effort. Likewise, Humphrey did not provide clear guidance on another proposal in the Rural Committee's minority report, which, when passed, created, quote, the party commission that transformed presidential nominations into the primary-based competition that has characterized the process ever since, and which, had it been in place in 1968, would have denied Humphrey a shot at the presidency. On one category of procedural battles, though, Humphrey was highly involved. In 1964, rival delegations had come to the Democratic National Convention to represent Mississippi. One was an all-white delegation, while the other was desegregated. At that time, the compromise had been that, moving forward, quote, state parties must form their delegations regardless of race, color, creed, or national origin. To no one's surprise, there were yet again challenges posed to 15 mostly Southern delegations. Humphrey and his camp immediately dismissed the segregated Mississippi delegation the first time, quote, a delegation had been excluded from the convention on grounds of racial discrimination. However, they sought compromise on some of the other delegations, which led to a walkout of Georgia delegates led by their governor, Lester Maddox, who had briefly thrown his hat into the presidential ring in mid-August and just as quickly withdrawn it when he found himself completely alone in terms of support. Though highly contentious in terms of procedure, the commotion in the convention was pale in comparison to that occurring out in the city. 
The evening of Humphrey's nomination was also the night of a planned demonstration in Grant Park organized by the National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam, or MOBI. A permit had been issued to the organizers by the city government, but the city's leaders and the police were on edge. Thus, officers were on hand and warned those in attendance to keep the demonstration confined to the park. With around 10,000 in attendance, though, there was little anyone could do to keep order. The police were assaulted by, quote, insults, bottles, and rocks. And before long, quote, a demonstrator climbed a pole in the park to remove an American flag. In response, officers with helmets went into the crowd, quote, swinging billy clubs. The leader of Moby, David Dellinger, led around 5,000 individuals out of Grant Park in an attempt to make their way to the convention, but they found themselves, quote, hemmed in by police at the intersection of Michigan and Balbo Avenues. At around 8 p.m., the police and National Guard forces, quote, launched tear gas grenades at the demonstrators and then attacked, wielding mace and clubs. The attack went on for around 30 minutes, and when it was over, not only would somewhere between 100 and 200 people be injured, including 25 to 50 police officers, depending on the source, and around 600 individuals end up arrested, but the video of the attack would quickly supplant coverage of the convention and the nomination process on national television. So, too, would it garner the interest of delegates to the convention, with some delegates bringing portable TVs into the convention hall to find out what was happening only a short distance away. Senator Abraham Ribicoff of Connecticut, while delivering the nominating speech for McGovern, threw in a critique of the Chicago city government's handling of matters by quipping, quote, with George McGovern as president, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo tactics in the streets of Chicago. Cameras turned to Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, who was in the crowd and apparently delivered a, shall we say, colorful suggestion of what Ribicoff could do with himself. Humphrey apparently fumed at the situation and asserted, pointing towards the TV on which he was watching all this unfold, quote, that instrument just recruits trouble. From the events out in the streets to the business of the convention, it was clear that the Democratic Party was sharply divided. McCarthy pronounced the events, quote, a ballet of purgatory. Still, Humphrey was now the party's nominee, and his first decision had to be who was going to serve as his running mate. As the presumptive nominee, of course this question had been on Humphrey's mind for some time. His first choice was Senator Ted Kennedy in order to try to bring the Kennedy faction into the fold, but the senator from Massachusetts turned down the offer. The Kennedy clan ensured that another possible running mate removed himself from nomination as well. U.S. Ambassador to France, Sergeant Shriver, the Kennedy brothers' brother-in-law. Though former Deputy Secretary of Defense Cyrus Vance was put forward as a possibility, Humphrey had already narrowed the decision down to Senator Fred Harris of Oklahoma, New Jersey Governor Richard Hughes, and Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine. Harris would ultimately be deemed too young for such a prominent position as he was only 37 at the time and Hughes had ended up on the wrong side of Texas Governor John Connolly, a close Johnson ally, and thus an influence on Humphrey at the convention. When discussing the matter with aides on Wednesday evening, Humphrey finally ended the speculation by announcing, quote, Listen, it's going to be Muskie. Senator Muskie was from a Polish immigrant family and had managed to get himself elected as governor of Maine before his election as senator in a state that had previously been dominated by the Republican Party and, up until 1964, had only voted for Republican presidential candidates. 
Personally, Humphrey saw the quiet musky as a good fit for him, as he felt that he himself, quote, talked too much. In terms of ideology, Muskie had led the debate in support of the Johnson administration's Vietnam plank of the party platform in 1968, despite having previously expressed his opposition to continuing the conflict. When Humphrey informed Johnson via phone of his choice, though, Johnson expressed his disapproval. He cautioned the vice president to think of, quote, what political good this choice can do for you, and instead suggested Hughes, as well as North Carolina Governor Terry Sanford and former Georgia Governor Carl Sanders as possible alternates. Nevertheless, Muskie had already been called for, and when he arrived, Humphrey met with him for 45 minutes, after which Humphrey emerged as he needed to seek guidance from one of his political aides. Muskie's daughter was apparently pregnant and unwed, something that was still considered a potential political liability at the time. The vice president continued to weigh his options as the sun rose on Thursday. A press conference had been called for noon to announce his choice of running mate, but the Humphrey campaign delayed it until 2 that afternoon. Then, it was pushed back to 2.30, then 4, then 4.30. By this point, Senator Harris of Oklahoma had been called in as Humphrey reconsidered him. Finally, he made his choice and informed both of the senators. Muskie was the one, and the announcement was made. That evening, the convention, running two hours behind schedule, held a memorial to the late Senator Robert Kennedy, followed by the vice presidential nomination. At long last, it was time for Hubert Humphrey to deliver his acceptance speech to close out what had been a turbulent party convention. In the speech, he invoked the prayer attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, quote, Where there is hate, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. It was clear even from the point that he finished his speech, though, that hope and pardon were far from the order of the day. Humphrey called on his competitors for the nomination, Senators George McGovern and Eugene McCarthy, to join him on stage. McGovern did. McCarthy did not. The rifts were not healed, and the battered victor of the nomination battle now had to face Richard Nixon and a much more unified Republican Party. Meanwhile, other situations worked against the Democratic Party's efforts in the 1968 elections. The Vietnam War continued on with seemingly no end in sight. Indeed, the air war in South Vietnam was ramped up to its highest level to that point, with the number of B-52 missions tripling in that year, dropping over 1 million tons of bombs on South Vietnam. On the ground, U.S. and South Vietnamese forces engaged in, quote, the largest search-and-destroy mission of the war in the spring, with over 100,000 soldiers ordered out into the provinces surrounding Saigon. The South Vietnamese government, already seen as being weak, further devolved in its effectiveness due to infighting and concerns that the U.S. would withdraw from the conflict. Negotiations with the North Vietnamese had moved to secret talks in late June, but remained in a stalemate. While the Johnson administration continued to try to figure out what to do about Vietnam, they also initiated a new diplomatic outreach to the Soviet Union, with Johnson proposing a visit to Moscow in order, quote, to discuss ongoing points of difference. Before they were able to get too far into the planning for the summit, however, Soviet military forces invaded Czechoslovakia on August 20th to crack down on a growing reform effort. In so doing, they left the Johnson administration with no choice but to cancel the plans for a summit in protest. 
denying Johnson what could have been a great diplomatic feather in his cap for his legacy. Back in the States, September saw the first diagnosed case of the H3N2 virus, also known as the influenza A virus. That's right. On top of societal unrest and disputes in foreign affairs, Americans in 1968 also had to deal with a pandemic. For those listening to this in 2020, I'm sure this sounds all too familiar. With the 1968 pandemic, ultimately around 100,000 individuals in the U.S. lost their lives while the global death toll stood at around 1 million. This pandemic hit the age 45 and older population the hardest. Meanwhile, Johnson ended up in a months-long back-and-forth with the Senate with his ultimately failed nomination of his longtime political ally, Associate Justice Abe Fortas, as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to replace the retiring Chief Justice Earl Warren. While it is beyond the scope of this episode to go into the ins and outs of the Fortas nomination, Fortas' request in October that his name be withdrawn meant not only a political failure for Johnson, but also that the next president would be the one to choose the next Chief Justice. If the polls taken after the conventions were to be believed, it was increasingly looking like Johnson's successor would not be Hubert Humphrey. In early September, the Gallup poll found that Humphrey had gone up 2% in the poll after the convention, which put him at 31%, while Nixon had a comfortable lead of 43%, and Wallace came in third with 19%. While after the disaster that was the Democratic National Convention, any good news was welcome, the poor poll numbers meant that, quote, the large donors on whom the party had become dependent were keeping their wallets closed to the Humphrey campaign for the time being. And as the campaign was essentially broke after the convention, the month of September came and went with the campaign, quote, running virtually no radio or television ads. President Johnson could have helped Humphrey at this point as he had a $600,000 fund under his personal control and $700,000 in a fund controlled by the Democratic National Committee. When Humphrey's fundraising team reached out to the president, however, Johnson refused to give them a cent from either fund and did not make his own fundraising team available to the Humphrey campaign. Nixon and his team, meanwhile, had fundraising down to a science, and his finance director managed to raise $9 million for the primary battle and $24 million in additional funds for the general election. Wallace's small donor focus, along with a few key larger donations, left him with around $7 million with which to work. Unlike in more recent elections, in 1968, a presidential debate was not a guarantee. Indeed, given his poor showing in the 1960 debate against John F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon was not eager to participate in one eight years later. He claimed publicly that he would only debate Vice President Humphrey if George Wallace was not included. But the law at the time guaranteed that third-party candidates would have to, quote, share the stage with the major party nominees on any televised news programs, including debates. Democrats worked to change the law in order to facilitate a Humphrey-Nixon debate, but Nixon appealed behind the scenes to Republicans in Congress to get them to keep the law as is. The Democratic push to amend the equal time law was ultimately unsuccessful. Ten years later, Nixon wrote that, quote, self-interest determined my position on the debates. Humphrey was still far behind me in the polls and would therefore be the beneficiary of any debate. Humphrey attempted to use the situation to his advantage by calling out to crowds, quote, where is he? Where is the shadow? 
while looking around wherever he was at. Still, Humphrey remained behind in the polls and didn't have an opportunity to face off against the frontrunner. Humphrey, however, wasn't necessarily Nixon's main worry. With George Wallace's third-party run, the possibility that he might win enough electoral votes to deny either Nixon or Humphrey the 270 votes needed to win was a serious concern. As noted by Lesher, quote, Each time a Wallace rally was accompanied by some disorderly protest, which occurred more often than not, the Alabamian gained new sympathizers. Lesher described one such incident in Omaha, Nebraska, where, quote, about a hundred hecklers threw placards, chunks of wood, and coins in the direction of Wallace, who cried out, These are the free speech people. Then police waded in, triggering what one observer called a wild, bloody, and sometimes brutal clash. Wallace was whisked from the auditorium, but a night of rioting swept Omaha. In a year that had been marred by so much violence at home and abroad, and that was being broadcast into living rooms across America on a daily and nightly basis, some voters noted a lack of confidence in the two major parties in being able to meet the challenge. Again from Lesher, quote, Without question, Wallace's tough talk endeared him to those folks, both outraged and frightened, by street crime and riots. Even Ezra Taft Benton, the Secretary of Agriculture in Eisenhower's administration, endorsed Wallace and sponsored an appearance to, quote, a standing room only crowd of more than 14,000 at the Mormon Tabernacle in Salt Lake City, Utah. As is often the case with third party runs in American politics, however, seeing that Wallace's law and order rhetoric was gaining support, the candidates from the two main parties adopted the language and incorporated it into their respective campaign strategies, which had the effect of drawing the wind out of Wallace's sails. Wallace's problems, however, didn't start or end with his main talking points being parroted by the other candidates. The Wallace campaign suffered from two main weaknesses. Wallace and the campaign. Though Wallace had tempered his segregationist language in order to appeal to a nationwide audience, his past was always a liability, and no matter how he reframed it, he was stuck with the, quote, segregation nail, segregation forever label that he himself had applied. Meanwhile, though he had formed a new third party under whose banner to run, the only aim of the American Independent Party seemed to be to support George Wallace. There was no party platform, even as the general campaign was well underway. True enough, there was some strength in the decentralized nature of the campaign, with one Illinois reporter quipping that, quote, The Wallace campaign in Illinois is like the air. You can't see it, but it is all around you. There is no visible campaign structure, no headquarters, no billboards, no media advertising. But he will be on the ballot in Illinois, And the best estimates are that he will get 16% or better of the Illinois vote. However, this lack of coherence and clear message inspired fear and again established a ceiling of how much support Wallace could ever hope to get. Likewise, for a good portion of the campaign, Wallace didn't even have a running mate to help support his campaign effort. As mentioned earlier, Though former Georgia Governor Marvin Griffin had agreed to be Wallace's interim running mate to get him ballot access on states where they had to have a vice presidential nominee listed by a certain point, Griffin was not eager for the status to be permanent and indeed, quote, did more fishing than campaigning and went for weeks at a time without even speaking to Wallace. Finally, Wallace settled on a running mate, former U.S. Senator, former Kentucky Governor, 
and former Major League Baseball Commissioner A.B. Happy Chandler. Indications from Chandler were that he would accept the nomination, and thus Wallace's team leaked the news. Unfortunately for Wallace, though, others were not so pleased when they heard, including four state delegations of electors for Wallace, including the delegation from Kentucky. What about Chandler would turn representatives from his own home state against him, you ask? Well, Chandler had been MLB commissioner when the Brooklyn Dodgers brought Jackie Robinson onto their team, which opened the door to integration in Major League Baseball. Likewise, Chandler had been governor of Kentucky during the time of Brown versus the Board of Education, and he had not opposed the integration of public schools in that state. The reason that Wallace had chosen Chandler for the ticket the fact that he would help to moderate Wallace's image as a racist and a segregationist turned out to be a liability for Wallace, especially since the deadline had passed for when Wallace could choose new electors and the delegations were threatening to resign if Chandler remained on the ticket. Thus, Wallace sent three of his aides to Chandler's home in Versailles, Kentucky to tell him that he was being dumped from the ticket. That's right, the tough law and order candidate wasn't brave enough to tell his running mate in person or even by phone that he was being thrown to the side. Once the Chandler situation was dealt with, Wallace still had to pick another running mate. It wasn't until October 3rd that he announced former Air Force Chief of Staff Curtis LeMay as his running mate. Now, prior to settling on LeMay, Wallace had also considered Benson along with, wait for it, wait for it, Colonel Harlan Sanders. If that name doesn't ring a bell, these three letters may. K-F-C. That's right. Wallace considered Colonel Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken for his running mate. Ultimately, though, he passed on the opportunity to learn the colonel's secret recipe and opted for LeMay. LeMay certainly appealed to the law and order crowd, but just like with Wallace, his history also set a ceiling as to how much support the ticket could get. From Lusher, quote, LeMay had long been a super hawk on the U.S. role in Vietnam. He even wrote a book in 1965 that his solution to ending the conflict was to tell the North Vietnamese government, quote, to draw in their horns and stop their aggression, or the U.S. would bomb them back to the Stone Ages. In the news conference announcing him as the running mate, LeMay did the ticket no favors by asserting that a Wallace administration, quote, would use anything that we could dream up, including nuclear weapons, if it was necessary to win the Vietnam War. Though Wallace stepped in and tried to clarify LeMay's remarks, it was too late. On top of the racist label, the Wallace campaign had to deal with the image of being trigger-happy with the nuclear arsenal six years after the Cuban Missile Crisis had panicked the world. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, Humphrey did ultimately break from President Johnson, and on September 30th, delivered a nationally televised address in which he outlined his own strategy for a peaceful resolution to the Vietnam conflict. This did not mean that Johnson himself had ended his attempts to seek a diplomatic end to the conflict. Though the ins and outs of the Johnson administration's efforts are beyond the scope of this episode to consider, it is worth noting that, on October 16th, the president arranged a conference call with the three contenders in order to share with them that, quote, there had been a breakthrough. Hanoi had agreed to allow the government of South Vietnam to participate in the peace talks if Johnson stopped the bombing. While the American officials had put forward some conditions to it, Johnson did share that they were hoping to reach an agreement. 
Johnson was able to share a bit more in person with Nixon and Humphrey that evening when he made a surprise appearance at the Al Smith Dinner, an annual event in New York City. For Nixon, this development presented a potential challenge to his campaign as part of his platform was that the Democratic administration had thus far proven ineffective at resolving the Vietnam conflict. But publicly, at least, he asserted that, quote, we do not want to play politics with peace. In private, however, Nixon did just that. Through contacts, he reached out to South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thieu to persuade him against joining the negotiations. The implication was that South Vietnam would be better positioned in negotiations directed by the Nixon administration than by the Johnson administration. While ultimately, contemporary observers like Secretary of Defense Clark Clifford and later historians like Stephen Ambrose have concluded that the two government did not need to be persuaded by Nixon or his supporters to refuse to participate in the negotiations in the twilight days of the Johnson administration. The fact that Nixon had, in fact, made contact would ultimately come to be known to the Johnson administration in the days leading up to the election, and Johnson had to weigh whether to release the information publicly. Ultimately, after talking with Nixon, in addition to his own advisors, Johnson was convinced to keep Nixon's channel to the South Vietnamese government a secret prior to Election Day. Though Wallace did ultimately release a platform while campaigning in San Francisco on October 13th, and Humphrey established his independence on the Vietnam issue, the Nixon machine had kept churning on throughout the year without any major obstacles. Thus, Wallace supporters started dropping off to Nixon after the LeMay fiasco, and though Humphrey started to rise both in the polls and in campaign contributions starting in October, it was too little, too late. When the votes came in on November 5th, Nixon won the popular vote with nearly 31.8 million votes to Humphrey's 31.275 million and Wallace's 9.9 million, or 43.4% to 42.7% and 13.5%, respectively. In the electoral vote, it was a more resounding victory. Nixon won 301 electoral votes, well over the 270 needed while Humphrey won 191 electoral votes and Wallace, 96. Wallace's electoral votes all came from the Deep South, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi, indicating that the Democratic Party would face further struggles in what had traditionally been a solid geographic base for the party. The Wallace victories in those states would also have to be on the radar of the Republicans as four of the five states that Wallace won had been won by Goldwater in 1964. Despite the fact that the electoral victory was without question, it was the lowest margin of victory in the Electoral College for a presidential candidate since Woodrow Wilson was re-elected in 1916. Voter turnout was also down by a percentage point, 61% in 1968. Thus, even with the election over and the year drawing to a close, Americans in 1968 had plenty of reasons to worry about what lay ahead in the future. For those of you who are listening to this well after its release, you have a better sense of how things turned out. But for those in 2020 listening to this episode, just like the folks in 1968, we find ourselves in a time of uncertainty and fear. I know that it is easy to give in to those feelings and be overwhelmed. But part of my aim of doing this special series, and indeed, the entire podcast is to help to provide some context and linkage to those who have struggled in the past. The most important thing now, 
as it has been for hundreds of years, is participation. For our American listeners, if you haven't already, get out and vote. For all of our listeners around the world who are able to vote and participate in your government, please do so on a regular basis. It's not just the national elections that are important. Local elections have both a greater immediate impact on you, your family, and your neighbors, and it also provides you with a greater likelihood of shifting the election in favor of your views. I've devoted my life to making people feel like they were a part of something rather than apart from something, and that's what I like to leave you all with. This is your community, your nation, and your world, but it's not yours alone. All of us must work together in order to find our path ahead. Working on this episode has been both a catharsis for me and a vehicle through which to reflect upon how I want to, as a citizen, help the community, the nation, and the world to move forward. And I hope this labor of love will help to inspire you to reflect and act in the days, months, and years ahead. As our journey on this episode comes to a close, I'd like to again thank Ben, Arjun, and Alex for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Special thanks also to our patrons, Matthew, Michelle, Jeremy, Kara, Howard, and Scott. On the monthly meetup for patrons at the $10 per month and above contribution level, they've been getting regular updates about this episode, and I hope that they found it well worth the wait, and yet another example of the hard work and dedication that is supported by their generosity. If you'd like to join them in donating to this effort, just go to patreon.com forward slash presidencies and sign up. Beyond just monetary contributions, there are other important ways that you can help support this podcast. You can leave a rating and review for presidencies on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, or you can share information about the podcast on your social media. If you're not following me already, I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. If you'd like to send me a message, feel free to reach out to me on social media or via email at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. If you'd like to see the sources used for this episode or find links to the work of the great podcasters who provided the intro quotes, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, Last but certainly not least, I need to thank you, dear listener. A podcast is only as good as its audience, and I am humbled and privileged to have such an amazing community of listeners who have continually provided encouragement for this project. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.